Sisters and brothers, Dharma masters, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Supreme Assembly, welcome to the Buddhaverse podcast, and welcome to 2021. If we are lucky, we have survived the pandemic and survived the darkness of the Trump era. But as the saying goes, you might have got the monkey off your back, but the circus is still in town. And what I mean by that is that greed, anger, delusion, pride, and jealousy still have a firm grip on our minds, and we're still facing a mass species extinction and climate crisis, poverty still affects a majority of humanity, and war and violence still threaten to destabilize the world where it has not yet already. So moving into the new year, what has to change is us. Our minds have to change. We all, individually, in our hearts, families, communities, and countries, have to unify wisdom and compassion, learn from the best, and like the Buddha and Jesus, Gandhi and Dr. King, like Mandela and Dalai Lama, be the change, which is why I'm doing today's episode on what is a Buddha. January is almost over, and I took a long time to research and prepare this episode, because it may be the most important thing I've ever said. So let's drop the body and mind, return the light, and enter into the Buddha-verse. What we need is a Buddha-verse emerging. In other words, we need Nirvana emerging. It's called Enlightenment. This here is called the Buddhaverse Podcast, and what I'm trying to do is present this thing called Buddhism to a modern audience and to get the nuts and bolts of what it is academically, culturally, religiously, psychologically, and so on. But as I've done a few episodes on what I think are important topics in the art of Buddha Dharma, there is no more important topic to Buddhism than the Buddha. So I'm going to do an episode on who or what is a Buddha. What do the Buddhists say a Buddha is? What is this occurrence that happened on earth some 2,600 years ago that caused human beings to become aware of an aspect of reality totally unique to Buddhism? This question is the very basis for most of the earth's cultural evolution, as the idea of a Buddha has shaped the psyche of all of Asia and, in recent centuries, much of the West as well. So human evolution is inseparable from the Buddha Shakyamuni, as we live on the planet that he lived on. To the Mahayana Buddhists, we are currently living in the pure land or spiritual realm of Shakyamuni Buddha. While being extremely resplendent, like the spiritual concepts of Allah in Islam, or Maheshvara or Supreme Lord of the Vedic Brahminical religion, this concept of the Buddha is completely unique to Buddhism and presents a kind of supreme being, that is not one being, nor is it many beings, or the sum total of beings. It is not the creator of the universe, nor is the Buddha in charge of your life or arbiter of your destiny. The historical Buddha of India is who most people know who the Buddha to be. I've heard it taught that Buddha was a title given to Prince Siddhartha Gautama upon his enlightenment, in quotes, but this word is more than just a moniker or appellation. It is not just a proper noun. It is the most unique word. 
And not in the way that all words are unique because all words are different definitionally, as in the word dog is not the word cat, but unique in the sense that as a word, it is the summation of all of reality. The definition of the word Buddha is an unraveling of all conventional reality into the infinite, non-dual, integrated, interdependent, relational, unified, concomitant, reciprocal, ultimate reality that conforms to things the way they actually are. Siddhartha made the statement, I am awake. And this word Buddha in Sanskrit means exactly one who is awake. In Chinese, it is full. In Japanese, butsu. In Tibetan, senge. In Thai, puto. In Korean, bulta. And in Vietnamese, pet. To an outsider, it would seem that the people of these countries were worshipping this person or God as one does in any religion. But to an insider, one who knows that the billions of Buddhists over the ages who practiced the Dharma taught by Buddha Shakyamuni were themselves striving to achieve Buddhahood for the sake of ending their own suffering and the suffering of all beings everywhere throughout time, space, and dimension. Buddhahood is not something that can be bestowed, and it is not a matter of grace or destiny. Unsurpassed, perfect, and complete awakening, or Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi in Sanskrit, is revealed in one's own experience, and the whole of the Dharma is geared towards and centered around achieving Buddhahood as an actual, practical, realistic opportunity for sentient beings to achieve. But for me, the fascinating thing that jumped out most in doing my initial investigations into the Buddhist traditions are what the Buddhists say a Buddha actually is or is not. And this can be a ridiculously difficult question to answer in any exhaustive and complete way, and is usually only done contextually, and an oversimplified explanation will have to be given for the sake of time and people's attention spans, but this is a podcast where I'm just talking to myself in my back bedroom, so I can be thorough in this investigation to some degree, although certainly not exhaustive nor complete by any means. Since I first asked myself the question, what is a Buddha? The answer I would always hear is, he is the one who became totally enlightened or fully awakened. And then I would have to ask, what does that mean? What is enlightenment or awakening? What is Buddhahood? I have tried to hear as many answers to these questions as possible, and what I found are that the masters of the traditions that stem from the Buddha Shakyamuni have provided more answers to this question than are readable in a lifetime, and that what they have to say entirely corresponds despite vast spatial, temporal, and cultural distance. The great Dharma leaders that have walked the face of the earth, like Upagupta, Nagarjuna, Padmasambhava, Atisha, Dogen, Milarepa, Bodhidharma, Kukai, Longchenpa, Huineng, fascinate me to no end, because I learned that not just the Buddha woke up, but that many people on earth realized the awakening of a Buddha by following the path that was laid out for them. So when I read their texts and accounts of their experiences, I get a peek into the mind of the omniscient ones. So suffice to say, these texts are extremely important to Buddhists who want to be Buddhas themselves. Shakyamuni is not alone in his realization, because he gave thousands of teachings that were passed on for people with different temperaments and unique karmic situations that were most effective at bringing about the desired effect of liberation. So this resulted in many traditions that focused narrowly, sometimes, on individual aspects of Shakyamuni's vast catalog of dharma, which can be broken down into what are called the three turnings of the wheel. 
the Shravaka path of individual liberation, the Bodhisattva path of liberation for all beings, and the path of Vajrayana for those of the highest capacity and spiritual abilities. And the masters of all these lineages wrote voluminous commentaries and exegesis on the Vinaya, the rules of conduct, the Sutra, the bequeathed accounts of the Buddha's life and teachings, and the Abhidharma, the compendium of phenomenology, where our experiential reality is categorized and examined in rigorous detail. And within these writings, what you find is that although these men and women of realization are often thousands of years and thousands of miles apart in distinct cultures and languages, what they share are profoundly similar incongruent descriptions of the modes of practice, the structure of reality, the names of the deities and Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, ethical imperatives, and agreed-upon definitions of jargon and technical terms, which demonstrates how careful and meticulous the Buddhists have been in preserving their sacred texts and practices, taking extreme care when it comes to translations and philosophical astuteness. While there may be some minor discrepancies about a sentence or two in a sutra or a point of divergence when it comes to the deepest ontological assessments, what comes across to me is a worldwide network of sincerely and highly competent people that are largely in agreement about the practice and understanding and who strive to the utmost to transmit the essence, the heart, and the framework of the teachings of the Buddha to future generations. And the reason, in my view, for such a large network of diverse and yet corresponding and compatible Buddhist traditions is that what the Buddha Shakyamuni laid out in his time for his disciples, the words and deeds of the great sage, were in actuality the actions of an omniscient being. Note here that I say omniscient and not omnipotent, because what the Buddha knew, because he knew everything, is that you cannot do anything for anyone in terms of education, having a change of heart, making good decisions. But what you can do, and what he did do, is say and do exactly what needed to be said and done to bring all sentient beings to enlightenment as quickly as possible. As famously said by the Buddha, Buddhas do not wash away sins with water, nor do they remove suffering of beings with their hands. Neither do they transplant their own realization into others. Teaching the truth of suchness, they liberate beings. So, as Robert Thurman said, if the Buddhists could just bliss-bomb everybody into nirvana and make everyone happy, they would. But we each live in our own universe, and we are all each individually experiencing a subjective node of morphic elemental cohesion, and grammatically and logically, no two things are the same. I'm not looking out of your eyes. You don't have my memories. I don't feel your pain, and the Buddha can't make our decisions for us. There is a story of Bai Zhang from the Chan tradition. There was a fox spirit who came to the saint Bai Zhang and told him, 500 lifetimes ago, I was a monk who was asked, Is the Buddha free of karma? And I replied, Yes, a Buddha is free of karma, and I have been a fox spirit ever since. Please tell me what is the correct answer so that I can be reborn a human again. Bai Zhang answered, A Buddha is not free of karma. A Buddha makes no mistakes in karma. The Buddha, with every word and deed, did exactly the perfect thing to transform sentient beings into Buddhas themselves. This meant establishing a monastic order of arhat disciples that were endowed with perfect sainthood and supernormal abilities. 
him traveling widely throughout India, teaching on all aspects of reality pertaining to awakening, demonstrating perfect reasoning and complete mastery over the forces of nature, being completely free of all desire, grasping, malice, stubbornness, and ignorance, and showing inconceivable compassion and skillful means to all who stepped into his sphere of influence, a sphere of influence that we are still living within this very moment. And those who were his disciples, after his seeming departure from our realm, spread out across the planet to metastasize as a cancer within the body of samsara, and firmly establish lasting institutions up until this day. And these institutions are what we should look to for information about this incredible being from 2600 years ago, because they are the guardians, the servants, the emissaries, and the ministers of this king of Dharma, the Buddha Shakyamuni. So for this episode, I'm going to draw on not just the suttas of the Pali Canon and the Mahayana Sutras, but also the writings of some of the great scholar monks that earn the right to be called noble, to answer the question, what is a Buddha? Because it takes one to know one, and only a Buddha knows the state of another Buddha. But what I'll be covering in this podcast is who was the original Buddha of our time, Siddhartha Gautama, the Shakyamuni Buddha, and then I will do selected readings from Buddhaghosa's Visuddhimagga, The Path of Purification, selected readings from the Pali Suttas, the Mahasihananda Sutta, the Great Discourse on the Lion's Roar, the Diganikaya Lakana Sutta, the Discourse on the Characteristics of a Great Being, the Buddha Sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, and the Nagara Sutta, the Discourse on the City from the Samyutta Nikaya. This is part one of a two-part series, and in part two, I will cover from the Mahayana tradition with selected readings from the Amitabha, or Infinite Life Sutra, the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, the Avatamsaka, or Flower Garland Sutra, and the Vajracetika, or Diamond Cutter Sutra. Then I'll pull some selected quotes from Buddha ancestors from the great traditions, starting with Nagarjuna's Mahaprajnaparamita Shastra, Asanga's Abhidharma Samuchaya and Abhisamaya Lamkara, Bodhidharma's Bloodstream Sermon, Dignaga's Pramana Samuchaya, Huinung's Platform Sutra, Padmasambhava's Natural Liberation, Kukai's Buddhahood in This Very Body, The Songs of Milarepa, Dogen's Shobogenzo, Master Hua's Avatamsaka Sutra Commentary, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche's Heart Essence of the Enlightened Ones, Alan Wallace's Tibetan Buddhism from the Ground Up, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama's The Middle Way. These are some of the most highly revered masters through the ages, but they are just a few names amongst thousands who have followed the path of Buddha Dharma to its culmination. The concepts and qualities that describe the Buddha that I'm about to bring up are mind-bending. They challenge the human intellect to even fathom. What's described in the sutras and shastras is the most advanced form of cognition and cosmic realization possible in the Buddhist description of reality, which hopefully will open our minds to a greater extent and put us in the presence of a consciousness that not only is transcendent, but more transcendent than can even be imagined in our current state. To say what a Buddha is, is to wrap language around the ineffable, to put the inexhaustible totality into a frame of reference. It is drinking the ocean with a fork or fragmenting empty space. But simply saying you can only experience it and can never conceptually understand it, while being ultimately true, is a huge bummer and doesn't serve the purpose of having a podcast where all I can do is repeat concepts that I've heard from other people. 
Plus, the sagely family of Siddhas and Saints did not write a ten libraries of Alexandria-sized compilation of exactly what a Buddha is and how one goes about becoming one because they were egghead overachievers. They did it out of tremendous compassion for our despicable predicament and their own personal experience of the fact that the sutras deliver on their prescriptions. So attempt the impossible we will. When one reads about the powers and abilities that are mentioned constantly in the sutras and shastras, or the commentaries on the sutras, it's very easy to think, what is this Marvel superhero-sounding craziness? And what were these ancient Asians smoking when they came up with this? But in fact, these Asians were dead sober, not lying, incredibly serious, unfathomably intelligent and scholarly, highly accomplished in the art of meditation and contemplation, and their lives and work were the focal points of some of the most advanced and civilized cultures that Earth ever produced. And the pervasive underlying theme of these cultures was Buddha, what a Buddha is and how one becomes one. So for the historical Buddha. He's a man, an extraordinary man. From the very beginning of his life, he's extraordinary. That's the case, not supernatural. Natural, but extraordinary. That was the great elder Balangoda Ananda Maitreya speaking in the 1977 BBC documentary Footprints of the Buddha. Ananda Maitreya was a great master of the Theravada, or Way of the Elders, but was also a renowned Mahayana or Universal Vehicle scholar. What he said is that the person we know today as Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, was in fact a real person. He was a man, with a family lineage, a country, and like many great beings of the past, left a legacy. This legacy is known today as Buddhism. I don't want to dwell too much on the historicity of Siddhartha Gautama or his life story too much, but this would be a shallow and dry podcast if proper context was not given, and the humanity and presence of this figure were not paid tribute. The Buddha was born in around the 6th century BC in northern India in a city-state called Kapilavastu, which today, based on archaeological findings, may have been in the Indian Uttar Pradesh city of Piprawa or the Nepali city of Tilorakot, both cities in very close proximity on the Nepali and Indian border. He was born to the warrior class, the Kshatriyas, to King Shudodana and Queen Maya of the Shakya clan, who were a well-documented and widespread clan of patrician dynastic kings who ruled over a large swath of northern India, whom Siddhartha was destined to inherit the responsibility of. The Shakya lineage could be traced to some of the oldest Indian literature, known as the Puranas, in which the Shakyas are linked with Lord Rama's son Kusha. Some of the oldest discovered ancient Indian coinage, known as the Shakya Janapada, were silver coins minted with Shakyan emblems on them, and I'll post these pictures on the Buddhaverse website. Siddhartha was born under auspicious and extraordinary circumstances, all of which are documented in the sutras such as the Lalita Vistara Sutra and the Acharya Abhudatta Dhamma Sutta, so you can read about those on your own time. But in short, it is held that before coming to earth, gazing upon the landscape and gauging its people and countries, its potentials and capacities for learning and accepting the teachings of the Dhamma, he saw a suitable kingdom and family in India in which to grace his presence, and feeling the conditions were prime, took rebirth, and the heavens and the earth both quelled and celebrated the descent of the pre-Buddha, 
known as just the Bodhisatta in the Pali Canon and the Bodhisattva Sveta Ketu in the Mahayana Sutras. Now, this act of taking birth from the heaven of Tusita is the first of what are called the Twelve Deeds. The Twelve Deeds, according to Rigpa Wiki, are the deeds such as Buddha Shakyamuni, and we'll be coming back to that term much later on. But the other eleven deeds are entering the mother's womb, taking birth, becoming skilled in various arts, delighting in the company of royal consorts, developing renunciation and becoming ordained, practicing austerities for six years, proceeding to the foot of the Bodhi tree, overcoming Mara's host, becoming fully enlightened, turning the wheel of Dhamma, and passing into Mahaparinirvana. To give brief detail about the deeds of the Buddha and some specifics of Buddha Shakyamuni's life, I found a verse written by the 18th century Nyingma master Rigzen Jigme Lingpa called Praise of the Twelve Acts of the Buddha. So here that goes. In the city of the immortal gods, in the heaven of Tusita, the Bodhisattva, Holy Svetiketu, saw the vessel to contain the successor of the Sakya clan was the Lady Maya Devi, her eyes of doe-like beauty. Like the splendor of a sunrise on a mountain's eastern face, she gave birth, a lotus opening and blossom in the Lumbini Grove. Brahma and Indra were there to serve you, to tend you with all of their grace. You who are prophesied into the lineage of enlightened ones, I bow to you in homage. Among the Sakya youths, vaunting their athletic physique, you excelled in your prowess in the sixty-four crafts. All conceded victory, and your renown filled the eyes and ears of all. Never were you a slave to the noose of craving and desire. Yet to please your father you married, but saw this illusion for the illusion that it was, ruling the kingdom all of the while. So you were known as Sarvartha Siddha, I bow to you in homage. Though precarious, fraught with danger and with change, no one was immune to the allure of the kingdom, save you. Your mind was captivated by the four encounters that caused renunciation, and you ordained yourself a self-originating bhikshu. Your constant perseverance, never tiring by the Nairajana River, gave you the strength of mind to bear the agony of austerities, and the concentration to keep on taming conceptual thought, which delighted the Sugatas of the Ten Directions. I bow to you in homage. Through three incalculable eons and samsaric existence, you sought the meaningful by binding all of your thoughts with a rope of accumulating merit and wisdom. Then beneath the Bodhi tree, you put the Maras to flight, and attained enlightenment as all Buddhas do. On the ship of the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma, you save beings who rush into samsara's bottomless and endless abyss, and ferry them to the perfect levels of liberation and omniscience. I bow to you in homage. Through the magical power of your miracles in Shravasti, you rendered speechless the Tirtika teachers, with all of their analysis and research, drunk on the wine of indulgence, had become oppressive in the extreme. In the final contest they were humbled, their prestige all drained away, as you triumphed through the four bases of miraculous powers, though you never experienced the feelings of birth, old age, sickness, and death, to bring disillusion to those who never think on the certainty of death, you displayed your passing into Parinirvana. I bow to you in homage. As a device to let beings whose merit is weak or small increase their practice of the positive and virtuous, you left relics that were inexhaustible in the eight shares, and you slept in the Dharmadhatu. So may I too bring perfecting, maturing, and creating pure realms to completion, then in the great Akanishta that transcends the three realms attain manifest Buddhahood, and through the ten acts displayed by a supreme emanation become your equal, omniscient one in benefiting beings. 
I don't have the time to discuss the differences between Mahayana and Theravada traditions of Buddhism with due diligence, but there is little difference regarding these 12 major deeds of a Buddha. Although there is some debate about what the Buddha taught during his turning the wheel phase in the Theravada textual canon called the Pali canon, in the Mahapanda Sutta, the great discourse on the lineage, the Buddha describes the previous six Buddhas that arose in our world. And while they attained nirvana under different kinds of trees, for example, their activities followed the same pattern as the Gautama Buddhas, which reflects the notion that in both traditions there is not one Buddha, but many Buddhas. So our Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, of this fortunate aeon, meaning aeon where the next 998 Buddhas will appear, was born a prince of the wealthiest and most powerful family of arguably the wealthiest and most powerful country of the time, enjoying fabulous wealth and privilege, and had every sensorial stimulant possible at his beck and call, meaning harems, daily feasts, singers and dancers, sporting events, four mansions, one for each season, and these delights were a bit more than endowments out of love and cherishing from his parents, but were more meant as distractions, because at his birth it was predicted that this child would become either an emperor of all of earth or a perfectly enlightened holy being. And wanting his son to carry on the glory of his family, King Sudodana wanted to keep the prince sheltered in the palace to ensure his destiny as a universal warlord. But upon traveling outside the palace gates for the first time in his life, Prince Siddhartha encountered old age, sickness, and death, and then finally a spiritual seeker called a Shramana. And after seeing these things for the first time, what arose in him was great compassion for the suffering of the people of his kingdom. He felt the futility of leading a sensuous life of a king, and felt a great responsibility to answer the greatest questions and solve the greatest problems that life has to offer. Because life invariably ends in old age, sickness, and death, can one achieve an end to suffering and achieve lasting happiness and freedom from the cycle of rebirth known as samsara? As a king and leader of the people, he felt a great weight on his shoulder, and as a father and husband, he felt a terrible burden of not being able to provide ultimate well-being to his family, for they too would grow old and get sick and die. Simply winning wars could not solve life's looming problems, and the priesthood of his time had yet to alleviate the very real and practical predicament of the unsatisfactory nature of reality. If he, the wealthiest and most fortunate person in a country, can get bored of his wealth, and on top of that feel restless and great empathy, and shared in the suffering of those less fortunate than he, then surely he could not rest until he knew for himself the way to and experience of his goal, which he would later call the attainment of nirvana. So Siddhartha left the palace in the night, cut off his hair, and gave his jewels and horse to his attendant, took his robe and bowl to the forest and towns of India in search of the answer, with five close companions, who all made the same aspirations as him, to go in search of the truth, if there was such a truth, and if it was reachable, India, already being steeped in spirituality and the already ancient traditions of renunciation and contemplation, had a plethora of spiritual paths, so he set out to master all of the yogic practices available, and was even asked to be a teacher himself after achieving the highest or deepest states of consciousness that contemporary meditation had to offer. You read in the sutras great explanations of these practices and the philosophies behind them, serving as a window into ancient India, 
demonstrating that there was little consensus on the nature of enlightenment and how to get there. Siddhartha found that although they delivered on temporary trances and anesthesia, these were simply impermanent states that one eventually came out of and back to the real world, with the same problems still intact. He then sought to starve and mortify his flesh in the hopes of weakening the physical body to free the spirit, which was a common theory and method of practice, but this only drained his energy and nearly killed him. Intuiting that this was not the way to true freedom, and utterly exhausted and debilitated, Siddhartha took a meal from a heavenly maiden, reportedly an emanation of a goddess, and seeing this, his companions thought that he had abandoned his spiritual journey and dejectedly deserted him. Having restored his vitality, he took to the root of a ficus religiosa, now called the Bodhi tree, and sitting on a seat of kusa grass, determined not to rise until he realized the attainment of enlightenment. And accomplishing the great task, realizing the great goal, it was here that he attained Buddhahood at the spot that is now known as Bodhgaya. Now, this is really what got me, what really confounded me when I heard the story of Buddhism, the apologue of Siddhartha. What do you mean he attained Buddhahood? What happened? What did he see? What did he learn? Did his body transform? Was there some sort of light or spiritual fireworks that happened? I'm going to talk about this at some length later on with quotes from the sutras about this significant and exceptional moment in human evolution with readings from Theravada and Mahayana texts but it is generally agreed that first under the tree he battled the king of demons, Mara, who tempted him with beautiful women, and then glorious splendor of being a universal monarch, and then posed threats of physical harm with his army of demons. But the Buddha transformed all of these beguiling and terrifying visions into pure wisdom, and upon their dissolution, he attained true samadhi, or meditative concentration. It's somewhat ambiguous in the text on whether this Mara is an actual entity or like a like a demon king from a certain level of the heavens or if it's a manifestation of Siddhartha's own neurosis and karmic affliction. But overcome Mara he did, and with the planet Earth herself as witness, in the third watch of the night, upon seeing the planet Venus in the sky, he attained omniscience into all of reality. He witnessed all events past, present, and future knew the minds of all beings, the causes of suffering, and the causes of the cessation of suffering, and the realization of the cessation of suffering, called nirvana. He realized the true nature of emptiness, or shunyata, the four seals of dharma, that all compounded things are impermanent, all contaminated things are suffering, all phenomena are empty and devoid of self, and that nirvana is true peace, and he formalized then what would later be called the crown jewel of the Buddhist teachings, the twelve links of dependent origination, pratitya samutpara, that tie all of these things together in a cohesive framework and gives explanatory power to the process of karma and rebirth, and how one can extricate themselves from it. These factors to the Buddha's awakening are all agreed upon amongst Buddhist traditions, but the Mahayana Sutras, such as the Avatamsaka, amongst others, paint an extremely detailed, sensational, and cosmic illustration of the events that took place under that Bodhi tree, where the whole universe welled up in ecstatic exuberance at the crowning of a new Buddha. But even this sutra omits some of the details of this event that are given in tantric texts that are meant for the eyes of privileged initiates due to their subtle and recondite subject matter that are easily misinterpreted 
if not guided through by a wise and knowing advisor, ideally one who can read your mind so as to skillfully guide you. This was a ridiculously brief and superficial overview of this event, and I really, really suggest reading the sutras or listening to Bob Thurman on his podcast talk about these events or Lama Alan Wallace about this topic and what happened when the Buddha became fully enlightened. And I just glossed over it very quickly, and that is not something you should gloss over in a half-assed manner that I just did. So I'll provide links to their discussions on the Buddhaverse website. So boom, Siddhartha Gautama is now the Shakyamuni Buddha. He continues to sit for 49 days under that tree, and when he gets up, he has the whole formula and game plan for what to teach and where. He finds his former companions at the deer park in Varanasi, which is still called Varanasi to this day, and gave the first Dharma teaching, the Chatvari Arya Satyani, or the Four Noble Truths, or what Bob Thurman calls the Four Facts of the Noble Ones, because people are noble and not facts. This was the establishing of the Triple Jewel, where the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha were first assembled. Venerable Ajnata Kundinya was the first disciple to become an Arhat at the first teaching, which in brief means a perfected being without hatred and desire, but not yet a Buddha. And this began the Buddha's 40-year teaching period, the events of which were recorded by the Arhat Sangha of monks or bhikshus, and is now known as the Tripitaka, the three baskets of the Buddha's teaching, the Vinaya rules of conduct, the Abhidharma or compendium of higher knowledge or phenomenology, and the Sutra basket, which is an extremely large collection of the events of the Buddha's career of teaching, which cover almost every detail of his life. His words, his deeds, the people he encountered, the events of India at the time, so, so much detail about everything that happened. It is one of, if not the most astounding collection of literature, and the greatest source of wisdom from a single source that the world has ever known. Just the sheer volume of its contents is astonishing and bewildering, with over 2,700 discourses filling hundreds of volumes that have been preserved. I don't think that there's really a word for it. It is so far beyond anything else that humanity has ever produced. He took as his disciples people from every caste, both men and women, from fellow royalty to the Brahmin priesthood to slaves of the lowest caste, and had them all shave their heads and wear the robes, so they were all on equal footing. Seniority of ordination into the order was the only form of hierarchical structure. Because of his training as a prince and as a general, he knew exactly how to create a structured monastic organization with rules of conduct, a system of education and training, facilities and uniforms, so that people from a wide variety of backgrounds and capabilities would have a chance at progressing along the path, which in Indian religion had never been done before as well as Siddhartha renouncing his royal inheritance to create a systematic subversion of the caste system certainly had never been done before. He was a religious reformer, a revolutionary, a social engineer, a true liberal arts teacher, in that he taught the art of liberation, an educator, a pioneer, a saint, and an all-around symbol of equality and justice that served as a template for how to cure societal ills and backwards thinking in a non-violent and inspiring way, allowing individuals to transcend not only their class limitations, but their biological and psychological limitations to realize the highest potential for well-being that reality has to offer, bringing true benefit for beings in this life and the next. 
His two chief disciples were named Shariputra, foremost in wisdom, and Mahamodgalyayana, foremost in spiritual power. His cousin and attendant Ananda had photographic memory and recorded all of his discourses. There was Mahakashyapa, who was foremost in ascetic practices and longevity, and who took over the Sangha after the Buddha passed away. Yashodara, the Buddha's wife, became an arhat and was considered chief amongst the female disciples and foremost in recalling incalculable eons, and Rahula, his son, was foremost in enthusiasm for learning the Dharma. There was Shibuti, foremost in penetrating emptiness, Anuruddha, foremost in divine vision, Upali, foremost in the Vinaya discipline, and many, many others, totaling 1,252 arhat disciples, who were the heirs to this Dharma kingdom firmly establishing the teachings in the world with their tremendous ethics, intelligence, dedication, virtue, compassion, and spiritual power. His monastic and non-monastic community of disciples were an inspiration to not just India, but the whole world, as their example quickly spread, transforming countries and cultures, and continues to do so today. So, the Buddha did one amazing thing after another— crossed over tens of thousands of humans, animals, gods, ghosts, and hell beings to the shore of Nirvana, and finally at the age of 80 he took his departure from the physical realm of desire between two solid trees, surrounded by his disciples and followers, the events of which are recorded in the Mahapari Nirvana Sutra, and according to the Mahayana understanding, he then went off to infinite other planets and realms to enact the same sequence of events that I just described for countless other beings in our same situation. And this process will continue into posterity until all beings themselves become Buddhas. And that means you and me, fam. So from this quick synopsis, we hear that our world, for a short period of time in India 2600 years ago, beheld a supreme emanation Nirmanakaya Buddha, and again this great earth will see another thousand Buddhas before we get swallowed by the sun, or whatever ends this streak of luck that we are currently enjoying. And before our Buddha Shakyamuni, there were many previous Buddhas. And from the Buddhist cosmology, we are to understand that there are infinite universes with beings like us, where Buddhas appear to teach them as well. So from the Buddhist worldview, we are in a pretty good situation. A Buddha has come, he taught the Dharma, it has survived, you are hearing about it now. Hopefully you are not some sort of slave and have the freedom to practice what he taught correctly and don't live in some sort of place where you'll go to prison for saying you're a Buddhist. And even if you don't have those circumstances right now, you may in the future. And even after this world blows up or becomes uninhabitable, you can be reborn on another planet or realm where you could meet a Buddha. So essentially, this universe is not a lost cause. And there's hope for every being that eventually you will encounter the suitable circumstances that will allow you to realize for yourself the highest truth and supreme bliss that a being in the universe can, meaning Buddhahood. And I'll talk about in the next podcast, part two, about the Buddha's realms called Pure Lands, the self-created universal Dharma centers where Buddhas and Bodhisattvas dwell and teach, the descriptions of which are so far out and brilliant they make this realm seem like a cruel joke. And there is a joke in this, the cosmic giggle as Terence McKenna put it, the inside joke of the wise guys, that this realm itself is a pure land. This is the Buddhaverse of Shakyamuni, the god of gods, the king of kings, the champion of the triple realm, the omniscient protector and tamer of those to be tamed, the one gone to bliss. The suffering of this realm is due to our misconstruing our situation, the misknowing of the true state of reality, and our position in it, 
It's the mind that creates a hell realm or a Buddhaverse. And those with the eyes to see will come to know that Shakyamuni Buddha never left. And so I'm told. And arousing a mustard seed of faith in me, I hope to find out for myself the extent to which these are true words. As Zangsar Kensei so brilliantly put it, the fact that you have a mind means that you are already 90% of the way there. So what is a Buddha exactly? Or should I say, what are the Buddha's qualities that distinguish them from, say, humans or gods or all other kinds of beings? I'll begin answering this by drawing upon Buddha Gosa's Vasudhimagga, the path of purification, in the section on recollection of the Buddha. Buddha Gosa was a Brahmin from Magadha and was born near Bodhgaya in India and early in life became fluent in the Vedas, the Brahminical canonical texts. And after an elder Buddhist monk who heard him chanting Hindu verses skillfully put some questions to him to test his grasp on logic of the Vedas, and this elder monk actually bested him on Vedic knowledge, and then the monk gave him some knowledge on the Abhidharma that impressed the young Brahmin so much that he left home and joined the Buddhist order, becoming one of the most renowned scholars and practitioners of his time. His text, the Vasudhimagga, is an exegesis of the doctrine of the Pali Canon, and to this day holds up as one of the primary commentaries and summaries of the Theravada tradition. In this book, Buddha Gosa provides a description of our Buddha, the Buddha Shakyamuni, his qualities, his epithets, his powers, and so on, in the section of the Six Recollections, which is meant as a meditation tool for developing concentration as a means to attain enlightenment. The Six are the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, generosity, virtue, and the gods. The entire text is invaluable knowledge for the path, but the section on recollection of the Buddha is what pertains to this topic, so I'll just go through that here. So if you would like to, you can use the following section as a guided meditation on the qualities of the Buddha, as a way to gain inspiration to practice, and what to cultivate to become like the world-honored one. Buddha Gosa begins the section by saying, The recollection arisen inspired by the enlightened one is the recollection of the Buddha. This is a term for mindfulness with the enlightened one's special qualities as its object. Now, a meditator with absolute confidence, who wants to develop firstly the recollection of the enlightened one among these ten, which are ten other forms of mindfulness that he listed before, should go into solitary retreat in a favorable abode and recollect the special qualities of the enlightened one, the blessed one, as follows. That blessed one is such, since he is accomplished, fully enlightened, endowed with clear vision and virtuous conduct, sublime, knower of the worlds, the incomparable leader of men to be tamed, the teacher of gods and men, enlightened and blessed. So Buddhaghosa just gave the nine subjects for the recollection, and he will expand upon these. The first special quality is why the Buddha is called the Arahanta, or the accomplished one, and shows how this word etymologically can have three different meanings, all of which describe the Buddha's awesomeness. Accomplished. Herein, what he recollects firstly is that the Blessed One is accomplished, Arahanta, for the following reasons. 1. Because of remoteness, Araka. He stands utterly remote and far away from all defilements, because he has expunged all trace of defilement by means of the path. And 2 because of his enemies, Ari, and these enemies, these defilements, are destroyed, Hatta, by the path, because the enemies are thus destroyed, he is accomplished. And three, the spokes, Ara, having been destroyed, Hatta. Now this wheel of rounds of rebirth, with its hub made of ignorance and of craving for becoming, 
with its spokes consisting of formations of merit and the rest, with its rim of aging and death, which is joined to the chariot of the triple becoming by piercing it with its axle made of the origins of cankers, has been revolving throughout time that has no beginning. All of this wheel's spokes were destroyed by him at the place of enlightenment as he stood firm with his feet of energy on the ground of virtue, wielding with his hand of faith the axe of knowledge that destroys karma. Because the spokes are thus destroyed, he is accomplished. This meaning of arahanta can also refer to the spokes of the wheel of becoming, known as the twelve links of dependent origination, pratitya samutpara, which is the causal process through which sentient beings remain in the beginningless process of ignorance, suffering, and rebirth. About this, the text gives a really long and kind of confusing explanation about dependent origination and fine material and immaterial clinging to the sense bases that, honestly, I couldn't explain properly if I wanted to, so I'll just skip to the end where he says... Now, the Blessed One knew, saw, understood, and penetrated in all aspects this dependent origination, with its four summarizations, its three times, its twenty aspects, and its three links. Knowledge is in the sense of that being known, and understanding is in the sense of the act of understanding that. Hence it was said, Understanding of discernment of conditions is knowledge of the causal relationship of states. Thus, when the Blessed One, by correctly knowing these states with knowledge of relations of states, became dispassionate towards them, when his greed faded away, when he was liberated, then he destroyed, quite destroyed, abolished, the spokes of this wheel of the round of rebirths of the kind just described. Because the spokes are thus destroyed, he is accomplished. And, five, because of his worthiness, araha, he is worthy, arahati, of the requisites of robes and etc., of the distinction of being accorded homage, because it is he who is most worthy of offerings. For when a perfect one has arisen, important deities and human beings pay homage to none else. For Brahma Sahampati paid homage to the perfect one, with a jeweled garland as big as Semeru, and other deities did so according to their means, as well as human beings as such as King Bimbisara of Magadha and the King of Kosala, and after the Blessed One had finally attained Nibbana, King Ashoka renounced wealth to the amount of 96 million, and the text doesn't say 96 million what, and founded 84,000 monasteries throughout all Jambudvipa, which we now call India. Because of worthiness of requisites, he is accomplished. And five, because of absence of secret evil doing, Rahabhava, he does not act like those fools in the world who vaunt their cleverness and yet do evil, but in secret for fear of getting a bad name. Because of absence of secret, Rahabhava, evil-doing, he is accomplished. Arahanta. And we move on to the section of fully enlightened. And this is referring to what the Buddha knows, his mind, his inner subjectivity, what it is like to have an enlightened mind. And it says, He is fully enlightened, Sama Sambuddha, because he has discovered, Buddha, all things rightly, Sama, and by himself, Samai. In fact, all things were discovered by him rightly by himself, and that he discovered, of the things to be known, that they must be directly known, which is the Four Noble Truths, of the things to be fully understood, that they must be fully understood, suffering, of the things to be abandoned, that they must be abandoned, the causes of suffering, of those things to be realized, that they must be realized, nirvana, or the cessation of suffering, and of the things to be developed, that they must be developed, that is, penetration of the path. 
Besides, he has discovered all things rightly by himself, step by step, thus. The eye is the truth of suffering. The prior craving that originates it by being its root cause is the truth of origin. The non-occurrence of both is the truth of cessation. The way that is the act of understanding cessation is the truth of the path. And so too in the case of the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind. Buddhaghosa then goes on to give a list of 21 things such as the six bases, the 18 elements, the five aggregates of form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness, which are the psychophysical conglomeration that gives rise to the experience of a sentient being. The ten casinas, or visible objects, such as earth, water, fire, air, wind, blue, green, yellow, red, white, enclosed space or aperture, and consciousness, that are all connected to the Four Noble Truths in the same way, meaning that it is attachment to our experience, and the distortion that comes from these attachments that obscure the enlightened mind, that cause suffering, cause further rebirth. And the Buddha clearly saw this and what to do about it. Essentially, the Buddha is called enlightened because he discovered and realized all aspects of reality that lead to the realization of nirvana and the path that brings it about. So because of this, Buddha Gosa says, In this way, he has discovered, progressively discovered, completely discovered, all states rightly and by himself step by step. Hence it was said above, He is fully enlightened because he discovered all things rightly and by himself. Lastly, in regards to the Buddha being fully enlightened with regards to dependent origination, Buddhaghosa says this, Herein, this is the construction of a single clause of the dependent origination. Aging and death is the truth of suffering. Birth is the truth of origin. Escape from both is the truth of cessation. The way that is the act of understanding cessation is the truth of the path. So this dependent origination, again, is not something that should be glossed over or minimized in any way. This is the single greatest subject of study that you will ever encounter. So again, I implore you to please look into it if you never have, and look into it even more if you think that you already understand it, because that is important. At this point in the footnotes, there is an interesting issue raised of the Buddha being fully enlightened with regards to omniscience. And this is some pretty good stuff here, and it's kind of complicated, so just uh, try to tune in. So, coming from Dhammapala, who was a commentator of the Visuddhimagga, the notes begin by highlighting the six kinds of knowledge unshared by his disciples, meaning the Arhat disciples, which are the knowledge of what faculties prevail in beings, knowledge of the inclinations and tendencies of beings, knowledge of the twin marvel, knowledge of the attainment of the great compassion, omniscient knowledge, and unobstructed knowledge. Uh, and about this, a question is raised. Is not unobstructed knowledge different from omniscient knowledge? Because in this list, they are presented as two seemingly different qualities. And the retort is, it is one kind of knowledge, but it is called omniscient knowledge because its objective field consists of formed, unformed, and conventional, i.e. conceptual dhammas, without remainder. It is called unobstructed knowledge because of its unrestricted access to the objective field, because of absence of obstruction. It is omniscient knowledge itself that is intended as unhindered, since it is that which occurs unhindered universally. And it is by his attainment of that that the Blessed One is known as omniscient, all-seer, fully enlightened, not because of awareness of every Dhamma at once, simultaneously. And it is said accordingly in the Pati Sambhita, 
This is a name derived from the final liberation of the Enlightened One, the Blessed One, together with the acquisition of omniscient knowledge at the root of the Enlightenment tree. This name Buddha is a designation based on realization, for the ability of the Blessed One's continuity to penetrate all Dhammas without exception was due to his having completely attained knowledge capable of becoming aware of all Dhammas. The footnotes then ask the question, If the Buddha knows all things in all of space and in all of the three times, does he know all of reality at once in a single undifferentiated moment, or does he know it all sequentially? And this poses a interesting logical problem, because if the Buddha were to see things all at once, the example given as seeing a painting at a distance, there would be no contrast and thus no differentiation, rendering him incapable of expressing concepts. It may also be said that the Enlightened One's knowledge occurs with the characteristic of presence of all knowable dhammas as its objective field, devoid of discriminative thinking and universal in time, and that is why they are called all-seeing, meaning that it is really only a single universal characteristic of all things, which is the concept of presence that is called omniscience, and all aspects are not directly seen or known by him, but past and future, as well as concepts, have no presence, and thus would be absent to present cognition, and thus the Buddha's knowledge would be limited and no longer omniscience. So it can't be said that the Buddha's knowledge occurs simultaneously. But if the Buddha's knowledge were to occur successively, with one object of knowledge preceding another, because reality contains infinite objects of knowledge, such as time, place, name, direction, etc., there would be no end to the Buddha's linear cognition of objects, thus it could never be said that he has omniscience in this way, nor can he know everything inferentially, because by definition inferential knowledge is that which is extrapolated due to lack of direct knowledge, which again would be outside the definition of unobstructed omniscience. So then how does the Buddha know everything? The footnotes say this, This is not a field for ratiocination or logical reasoning, for the Blessed One has said this, The objective field of enlightened ones is unthinkable. It cannot be thought out. Anyone who tries to think it out would reap madness and frustration. And this sounds like a very convenient way to say that you will never know. But this statement actually aligns perfectly with the way reality actually is. Reality is ultimately undefinable and utterly inexpressible, which is where you get the saying unthinkable. To speak of reality in terms of existence and non-existence, wave or particle, matter or energy, being and ending, one or two, basic conceptual duality, it will always lead to some sort of logical paradox, something that Schrodinger in his wave equations called superposition, or the field of pure probability that describes mass energy before it is observed and measured, constantly fluctuating, measurable but ultimately unpredictable and undefinable on the deepest level. But what paradoxical explanations of measurements in quantum physics show is that language and formula will never fully encapsulate the actual way things are. There is a lot more to be said about this by someone who's actually smart, and there are real books by PhD people on the subject uh, that are more knowledgeable about this than me. But to end this side note, the footnote says this, Whatever the Blessed One wants to know, either entirely or partially, there his knowledge occurs as actual experience, because it does so without hindrance. 
It has constant concentration because of the absence of distraction. It cannot occur in association with wishing of a kind that is due to the absence from the objective field of something that he wants to know. There can be no exception to this because of the words, all dhammas are available to the adverting of the enlightened one, the blessed one, are available at his wish, are available to his attention, are available to his thought. And the blessed one's knowledge that has past and future as its objective field is entirely actual experience, since it is devoid of assumption based on inference, tradition, or conjecture. So although it occurs with all dhammas as its object, it nevertheless does so, making those dhammas quite clearly defined, as though it had a single dhamma as its object. This is what is unthinkable here. There is as much knowledge as there is knowable. There is as much knowable as there is knowledge. The knowledge that is limited by the knowable, the knowable that is limited by the knowledge. So he is fully enlightened, because he has rightly and by himself discovered all dhammas together and separately, simultaneously and successively, according to his wish. So I'm just going to leave you with that one, because there's nothing more I can say about that. Again, remember that these concepts and explanations are meant to be pondered on and served as inspiration and possibility, not as dogma or divine revelation or a pill you just have to swallow without thinking about it because you're supposed to think about it a lot and question it deeply. So in our recollection of the Buddha, try this concept of omniscience on for size and imagine what it would be like to be such a being. So the third quality of the Buddha is that he is endowed with clear vision and virtuous conduct. And the text continues thus, Herein, as to clear vision, there are three kinds of clear vision and eight kinds of clear vision. The three kinds should be understood as stated in the Bhayabharava Sutta and the eight kinds as stated in the Ambata Sutta. The three kinds from the Bhayabharava Sutta are given thus. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of recollecting my past lives. I recollected my manifold past lives, one birth, two, five, ten, fifty, a hundred, a thousand, a hundred thousand, many eons of cosmic contraction, many eons of cosmic expansion, many eons of cosmic contraction and expansion. There I had such a name, belonged to such a clan, had such an experience, such was my food, such was my experience of pleasure and pain. Such the end of my life, passing away from that state, I re-arose there. I too had such a name, belonged to such a clan, had such an appearance. Such was my food, such was my experience of pleasure and pain, such the end of my life. Passing away from that state, I re-arose here. Thus I remembered my manifold past lives and their modes and details. This was the first knowledge I attained in the first watch of the night. Ignorance was destroyed, knowledge arose, darkness was destroyed, light arose, as happened in one who was heedful, ardent, and resolute. So this is describing the first type of clear vision that arose in his mind under the Bodhi tree in the first part of the night when the Buddha became fully awakened. He saw all of his past lives, the details of them, and what got him to the point where he was at that moment. So continuing on. When the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the passing away and reappearance of beings. I saw, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, beings passing away and reappearing. 
and I discerned how they are inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, in accordance with their karma. These beings, who were endowed with bad conduct of body, speech, and mind, who reviled noble ones, held wrong views, and undertook actions under the influence of wrong views, with the breakup of the body, after death, have reappeared in the plane of deprivation, the bad destination, the lower realms, and hell. But these beings, who were endowed with good conduct of body, speech, and mind, who did not revile the noble ones, who held right view and undertook actions under the influence of right views, with the breakup of the body, after death, have reappeared in the good destinations, in the heavenly world. Thus, by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I saw beings passing away and reappearing, and I discern how they are inferior and superior, beautiful and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, in accordance with their kama. This was the second knowledge I attained in the second watch of the night. Ignorance was destroyed, knowledge arose, darkness was destroyed, light arose, as happens in one who was heedful, ardent, and resolute. And so this was the second clear vision that the Buddha attained in the second watch of the night under the Bodhi tree, where he saw the karma of all sentient beings and how they ended up where they were. And so for the third, when the mind was thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of defilement, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, I directed it to the knowledge of the ending of the mental fermentations. I discerned, as it had come to be, that this is stress, this is the origination of stress, this is the cessation of stress, this is the way leading to the cessation of stress. These are the fermentations. This is the origination of fermentations. This is the cessation of fermentations. This is the way leading to the cessation of fermentations. My heart, thus knowing, thus seeing, was released from the fermentations of sensuality, released from the fermentations of becoming, released from the fermentations of ignorance. With release, there was the knowledge. Released, I discerned that birth is ended, Holy life is fulfilled, the task is done, there is nothing further for this world. This was the third knowledge I attained in the third watch of the night. Ignorance was destroyed, knowledge arose, darkness was destroyed, light arose, as happens in one who was heedful, ardent, and resolute. In the eight kinds, as stated in the Ambata Sutta, there are eight kinds of clear vision as stated, made up of the six kinds of direct knowledge together with insight and supernormal power of the mind-made body. Upon looking into the Ambada Sutta, I was directed to the Samanapala Sutta, or the Fruit of the Holy Life Sutta, translated by Tanisaro Bhikkhu, where the following insights and supernormal powers are given. And again, it gives this list. With his mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, unblemished, free from defects, pliant, malleable, steady and attained to imperturbability, he directs and inclines it to knowledge and vision. He discerns, this body of mind is endowed with form, composed of the four primary elements, born from mother and father, nourished with rice and porridge, subject to inconstancy, rubbing, pressing, dissolution, and dispersion, and this consciousness of mine is supported here and bound up here. The recluse Gotama then describes how a monk with clear vision sees this bodily condition just as clearly as a person holding a bright, flawless jewel in their hand can see and know that this is a beautiful barrel gem. The second insight is given thus. 
with his mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, unblemished, free from defect, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he directs and inclines it to creating a mind-made body. From this body he creates another body, endowed with form, made of the mind, complete in all parts, not inferior in its faculties. So Gotama then goes on to describe how a person taking a reed from its sheath or a sword from its scabbard, or a snake from its old skin, can know very easily that the two are different just by looking at them. So the person with clear vision can see that the corporeal body and the mind-made body are two different things. And looking at the notes in the Dika Nikaya, it says that this mind-made body can be likened to the soul. So based on my own interpretation of this ability, the monk with his power can project his or her consciousness outwardly, and as the sutta says, create this body, and this mind-made body has a form and faculties like a body. So I think this is describing a sort of out-of-body experience, perhaps. Pretty neat. But the clear vision aspect of this section is saying that they can tell the difference between and don't freak out or become confused by this out-of-body experience. The third clear knowledge regarding the supernormal abilities is given thus. With his mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, unblemished, free from defect, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, he directs and inclines it to the modes of supernormal powers. He wields manifold supernormal powers. Having been one, he becomes many. Having been many, he becomes one. He appears, he vanishes. He goes unimpeded through walls, ramparts, and mountains, as if through space. He dives in and out of the earth as if it were water. He walks on water without sinking as if it were dry land. Sitting cross-legged, he flies through the air like a winged bird. With his hand, he touches and strokes even the sun and moon, so mighty and powerful. He exercises influence with his body even as far as the Brahma worlds. Just as a skilled potter or his assistant could craft from well-prepared clay whatever kind of pottery vessel he likes, or as a skilled ivory carver, or his assistant could craft from well-prepared ivory any kind of ivory work he likes, or as a skilled goldsmith or his assistant could craft from well-prepared gold any kind of gold article he likes. In the same way, with his mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, unblemished, free from defects, pliant, malleable, steady, and attained to imperturbability, the monk directs and inclines it to the modes of supernormal powers. And the fourth clear knowing regarding clear audience is given thus, with his mind thus concentrated, and so on, he directs and inclines it to the divine ear element. He hears, by means of the divine ear element, purified and surpassing the human ear, both kinds of sounds, divine and human, whether near or far, just as if a man traveling along the highway were to hear the sounds of kettle drums, small drums, conchs, cymbals, and tom-toms, he would know, this is the sound of kettle drums, that is the sound of small drums, that is the sound of conch, that is the sound of cymbals, and that is the sound of tom-toms. In the same way, with his mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, unblemished, free from defect, pliant, malleable, and so on, he inclines it to the divine ear element. He hears, by means of the divine ear element, purified and surpassing the human, both kinds of sounds, both divine and human, whether near or far. The fifth clear knowledge regarding the reading of others' minds is given thus. With his mind thus concentrated, purified, bright, and so on, he directs and inclines it to knowledge of the awareness of other beings. He knows the awareness of other beings, other individuals, having encompassed with his own awareness. 
he discerns a mind with passion as a mind with passion, a mind without passion as a mind without passion. He discerns a mind with aversion as a mind with aversion, and a mind without aversion as a mind without aversion. He discerns a mind with delusion as a mind with delusion, a mind without delusion as a mind without delusion. He discerns a narrow mind as a narrow mind, and a broad mind as a broad mind. He discerns an expanded mind as an expanded mind, and an unexpanded mind as an unexpanded mind. He discerns a surpassed mind, one that is not at the most excellent level, as a surpassed mind, and an unsurpassed mind as an unsurpassed mind. He discerns a concentrated mind as a concentrated mind, and an unconcentrated mind as an unconcentrated mind. He discerns a liberated mind as a liberated mind, and an unliberated mind as an unliberated mind. Just as if a young woman, or a man, fond of ornaments, examining the reflection of her own face in a bright mirror or bowl of clear water, would know blemished if it were blemished or unblemished if it were not. In the same way, with his mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, and so on, the monk directs and inclines it to knowledge of the awareness of other beings. He knows the awareness of other beings, other individuals, having encompassed it with his own awareness. So that's pretty clear. Uh, so I think I'm just going to move on to virtuous conduct. Virtuous conduct should be understood as 15 things, that is to say, restraint by virtue, guarding of the sense faculties, knowledge of the right amount of eating, devotion to wakefulness, the seven good states, which are faith, conscience, shame, learning, energy, mindfulness, and understanding, and the four jhanas of the fine material sphere. And these four jhanas, they deserve their own podcast entirely, but I can't cover it right now, so again, I really suggest you look this up in your own time. For it is precisely by means of these fifteen things that a noble disciple conducts himself, that he goes towards the deathless. That is why it is called virtuous conduct. According, as it is said, here Mahanama, a noble disciple, has virtue, etc. The whole of which should be understood as given in the middle fifty of the Majima Nikaya, which is a very extensive collection of teachings the Buddha gave to householders, monks, wanderers, kings, and Brahmins, where there are vast amounts of wisdom waiting to be discovered by you. And the text continues. Now the Blessed One is endowed with these kinds of clear vision, and with this conduct as well. Hence he is called, endowed with clear vision and virtuous conduct. Herein the Blessed One's possession of clear vision consists of the fulfillment of omniscience, while his possession of conduct consists of the fulfillment of great compassion. He knows through omniscience what is good and harmful for all beings, and through compassion he warns them of harm and exhorts them to do good. That is how he is possessed of clear vision and conduct, which is why his disciples have entered upon the good way, instead of entering upon the bad way, as the self-mortifying disciples of those who are not possessed of clear vision and conduct have done. At this point, I would love to read the commentary by Dhammapala on this clear knowledge and conduct. It's pretty amazing. Here the master's possession of vision shows the greatness of understanding, and his possession of conduct the greatness of his compassion. It was through understanding that the Blessed One reached the kingdom of Dhamma, and through compassion that he became the bestower of the Dhamma. It was through understanding that he felt revulsion for the round of rebirths, and through compassion that he bore it. It was through understanding that he fully understood others' suffering, and through compassion that he undertook to counteract it. It was through understanding that he was brought face to face with Nibbana, and through compassion that he attained it. It was through understanding that he himself crossed over, and through compassion that he brought others across. It was through understanding that he perfected the enlightened one's state, and through compassion that he perfected the enlightened one's task. 
or was it through compassion that he faced the rounds of rebirth as a bodhisattva, and through understanding that he took no delight in it? Likewise, it was through compassion that he practiced non-cruelty to others, and through understanding that he was himself fearless of others. It was through compassion that he protected others to protect himself, and through understanding that he protected himself to protect others. Likewise, it was through compassion that he did not torment others, and through understanding that he did not torment himself. Likewise, it was through compassion that he became the world's helper, and through understanding that he became his own helper. It was through compassion that he had humility as the bodhisattva, and through understanding that he had dignity as a Buddha. Likewise, it was through compassion that he helped all beings as a father, while owing to understanding associated with it, his mind remained detached from them all. And it was through understanding that his mind remained detached from all dhammas, while owing to the compassion associated with it, that he was helpful to all beings. Just as the Blessed One's compassion was devoid of sentimental affection or sorrow, so his understanding was free from the thought of I and mine. What more can I say about that? That was pretty straightforward. Dhammapala absolutely crushed it. And so the fourth quality from the text talks about the Buddha being sublime. And about the Buddha's sublimeness, the Buddha Gosa says, He is called sublime, sugata, because of a manner going that is good. Two, because of being gone to an excellent place. Three, because of having gone rightly. And four, because of enunciating rightly. And so for the first one, because of a manner going that is good. A manner of going, gamana, is called gone, gata, and that in the Blessed One is good, sobanna, purified, blameless. But what is that? It is the noble path. For by means of the manner of going that he has gone, without attachment, in the direction of safety, thus he is sublime, sugata, because of a manner of going that is good. And for the second one, being gone to an excellent place. And it is to the excellent place, Sundara, that he has gone, to the deathless, Nibbana, that he is sublime, also, because of having gone to an excellent place. And so for the third one, uh, because of having gone rightly, Samagatata. And he has rightly, Sama, gone, Gata, without going back again to the defilements abandoned by each path. For this it is said, he does not again turn, return, go back to the defilements abandoned by the stream entry path. Thus he is sublime. He does not again turn, return, go back to the defilements abandoned by the Arahat path. Thus he is sublime. Or alternatively, he has rightly gone from the time of making his resolution at the feet of Dipamkara Buddha up until the Enlightenment session, by working for the welfare and happiness of the whole world, through the fulfillment of the thirty perfections, and through following the right way without deviating toward either of the two extremes, that is to say, towards eternalism or annihilationism, toward indulgence in the sense pleasures or self-mortification. Thus he is sublime, also because of having gone rightly. And four, he enunciates, gadati, rightly, sama. He speaks only fitting speech in the fitting place. Thus he is sublime, also because of enunciating rightly. Here is a sutta that confirms this. Such speech as the perfect one knows to be untrue and incorrect, conducive to harm, and displeasing and unwelcoming to others, that he does not speak. And such speech as the perfect one knows to be true and correct, but conducive to harm and displeasing and unwelcome to others, that he does not speak. And such speech as the perfect one knows to be true and correct, conducive to good, but displeasing and unwelcome to others, 
that speech the perfect one knows the time to expound, such speech as the perfect one knows to be untrue and incorrect and conducive to harm, but pleasing and welcoming to others, that he does not speak, and such speech as the perfect one knows to be true and correct, but conducive to harm, though pleasing and welcome to others, that he does not speak, and such speech as the perfect one knows to be true and correct, conducive to good and pleasing and welcome to others, that speech the perfect one knows the time to expound. Thus he is sublime, also because of enunciating rightly. So because the Buddha has gone in a manner that is good, in a manner that is blameless, that he has gone to nirvana, that he has rightly gone, as in not returning to delusion since he made the Bodhi aspiration, not falling into extremes, and because his speech is immaculate and fitting in every situation, the Buddha is said to be sublime. And so for the fifth quality, this one is a major doozy, because the Buddha is known as knower of the worlds, for a very good reason, in that if it's happening, he sees it, directly and clearly. The text continues, He is knower of the worlds, because he has known the world in all ways. For the Blessed One has experienced, known, and penetrated the world in all ways to its individual essence, its arising, its cessation, and the means to its cessation. And as regard to what Buddhaghosa means by worlds, there are three types, the world of formation, the world of beings, and the world of location. With regard to the world of formations, the text says this, Likewise, because of the words, one world, all beings subsist by nutriment, two worlds, mentality and materiality, three worlds, three kinds of feeling, four worlds, four kinds of nutriment, five worlds, five aggregates as objects of clinging, six worlds, six internal bases, seven worlds, seven stations of consciousness, eight worlds, eight worldly states, nine worlds, nine abodes of beings, ten worlds, ten bases, twelve worlds, twelve bases, eighteen worlds, eighteen elements. This world of formation was known to him in all ways. And I'm sorry that I don't have time to go through these lists and elucidate the twelve bases and so on. But if you wish to delve into these, which I suggest you do, if you just Google 12 bases Buddhism, it comes right up. And the same goes for the rest of these lists with minimal scrolling. But this world of formation is meant the world that appears to our psychophysical aggregates, be they sense spheres, the Brahma worlds, space, consciousness, the immaterial realms, and so on. Basically, form and formless realms and how they appear and function. And as for the world of beings, the text says this, He knows all beings' habits, knows their inherent tendencies, knows their temperaments, knows their bents, knows them as with little dust on their eyes and with much dust on their eyes, with keen faculties and with dull faculties, with good behavior and with bad behavior, easy to teach and hard to teach, incapable and capable of achievement. Therefore, this world of beings was known to him in all ways, so this world is more straightforward, it's our inner world that the Buddha knows thoroughly. And for the world of location, this section is very long and basically gives the dimensions of what in Buddhism is known as a kilocosm and a trikilocosm in which the Buddha exerts his influence and it's extremely specific and an interesting description of what the universe looks like when you have transcended normal perceptions and view the world from the form realm, meaning the realm of experience for someone who's achieved high states of meditational concentration. And we obviously 
all know that we have a round planet circumambulating 98 million miles from a very large sun on the outer region of an average-sized galaxy that is part of the Virgo supercluster, which in part is just one of the 100,000 galaxy Laniakea, meaning boundless heaven in Hawaiian, supercluster, which is 520 million light-years across, and scientists have seen other such superclusters that are even bigger. So needless to say, we live in a huge, infinite universe that is undoubtedly endless. And all this can be classified as being in the world of formations. But according to sutras and Buddha's own description of our universal context, we are on a continent floating in an ocean enclosed by a golden disk with its central axis called Mount Semeru and concentric mountain ranges surrounding the continents. Our continents made of the earth element are floating on water, which float in space, and the sun and moon and stars all orbit this central Mount Meru axis, giving our world a sort of circumferential atmosphere. This world system is adjacent on all sides by four other identical worlds with their own Mount Meru, and a thousand of these systems is called a kilocosm. A thousand of these kilocosms, totaling one billion of our world systems, is called a trikilocosm. And this trikilocosm is what is said to be Shakyamuni's sphere of influence. However, just as space never ends, these world systems proliferate in all directions endlessly, and all of the goings-on in all of these worlds the Buddha knows. So, as a faithful Buddhist, I do have to reconcile the two of these spatial incongruencies. Do I have to say that Buddha was a liar or making things up because he didn't really know and just had to say something to people 2,500 years ago to explain what those lights in the sky were? Certainly, I'm not about to throw out the extremely rigorous scientific findings of the last several hundred years just because they don't align with what my religion says. And the anti-science movement and flat earth lunacy that has somehow gripped the consciousness of the people of earth at least some of us, is perhaps the most dangerous failure of human education and is surely one of the growing pains of the technological age where people with zero scientific training and no expertise can just make a YouTube video that reinforces someone else's confirmation bias and now millions of people are convinced that they know more about science than someone that has decades of training and worldwide multilateral peer-reviewed affirmation in science findings that by all accounts qualify as knowledge. If modern science did not have actual knowledge that they base their experiments upon, there would be no science. If math that Newton and Galileo based their findings upon did not work, there would be no Einstein, no airplanes, no television, no modern medicine, no universities. Of course, there is biased experimentation. Of course, you can find scientists out there that say that there's no global warming or that it isn't caused by humans. But real science holds up to honest inquiry. And so, what about this Mount Miru? Why did Buddha say this? Lama Alan Wallace, who is my favorite, favorite Buddhist physicist, covers this seeming divergence in his discussions of Buddhist cosmology, and there are books that you can read about this, but even though this is the Buddhaverse podcast, I'm going to have to leave you hanging on this one as well. I obviously will have to do a whole episode about this topic, but for now, according to my understanding, you can have it both ways. That the way the universe looks to a god or a Buddha is very different than the way it looks to you and I. So, 
The sixth quality holds that Buddha is also called the incomparable leader of men to be tamed. And the text continues, In the absence of anyone more distinguished for special qualities than himself, there is no one to compare with him. Thus he is incomparable. For in this way he surpasses the whole world in the special quality of virtue, and also in the special qualities of concentration, understanding, deliverance, and knowledge and vision of deliverance. In the special quality of virtue he is without equal. He is the equal only to those other enlightened ones without equal. He is without like, without double, without counterparts. In the special quality of knowledge and vision of deliverance he is without counterpart. According as it is said, I do not see in the world, with its deities, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation with its ascetics and brahmins, with its princes and men, anyone more perfect in virtue than myself. And that was a quote from Buddha. And likewise, in the Agapasada Sutta, and so on, in the stanzas beginning, I have no teacher, and my like does not exist in all the world, all of which should be taken in detail. He guides... Sareti, men to be tamed, Purishadame. Thus he is leader of men to be tamed, Purishadama Sarati. He tames, he disciplines, is what is meant. Herein, animal males, Purisha, and human males, and non-human males, that are not tamed, but fit to be tamed, are men to be tamed. For animal males, namely the royal Naga, Apala, Kulodara, Mahodara, Agisika, Dumasika, the royal Naga Aravala, the elephant Dana Palaka, and so on, were tamed by the Blessed One, freed from the poison of defilement, and established in the refuges and precepts of virtue. And also the human males, namely Sachaka, the Niganta's son, the Brahmin student Ambata, Pokarasati, Sonadanda, Kutadanda, and so on, and also non-human males, namely the spirits Aravaka, Suchiloma and Karaloma, Sakura the ruler of gods, etc., were tamed and disciplined by various disciplinary means. And the following sutta, the Kesi Sutta, should be given in full here. I disciplined men to be tamed, sometimes gently Kesi, and I disciplined them sometimes roughly, and I disciplined them sometimes gently and roughly. Then the Blessed One, moreover, further tames those already tamed, doing so by announcing the first jhana, etc., respectively to those whose virtue is purified, etc., and also the way to the higher path to stream-enterers, and so on. Or alternatively, the words incomparable leader of men, to be tamed, can be taken together as one clause. For the Blessed One so guides men to be tamed, that in a single session they may go into the eight directions by the eight liberations without hesitation. Thus he is called the incomparable leader of men to be tamed. And the following sutta passage should be given here in full. Guided by the elephant tamer, bhikkhus, the elephant to be tamed goes in one direction. And for the seventh quality, Buddha was also known as the teacher of gods and men. He teaches anusasati by means of the here and now, of the life to come, and of the ultimate goal, according as benefits the case, thus he is the teacher, sattar. And furthermore, this meaning should be understood according to the nidesha, thus, Teacher, the Blessed One, is a caravan leader, since he brings home caravans. Just as one who brings a caravan home gets caravans across a wilderness, gets them across a robber-infested wilderness, gets them across a wild beast-infested wilderness, gets them across a foodless wilderness, gets them across a waterless wilderness, 
gets them right across, gets them quite across, gets them properly across, gets them to reach a land of safety. So too the Blessed One is a caravan leader, one who brings home the caravans. He gets them across a wilderness, gets them across the wilderness of birth. Of gods and men, Devamanusanam. This is said in order to denote those who are best, and also to denote those persons capable of progress. For the Blessed One, as a teacher, bestowed his teachings upon animals as well. For when animals can, through listening to the Blessed One's Dhamma, acquire the benefit of a suitable rebirth as a support for progress, and with the benefit of that same support they come, in their second and third rebirth, to partake of the path and its fruition. Manduka, the deity's son, and others illustrate this. While the Blessed One was teaching the Dhamma to the inhabitants of the city of Kampa, on the banks of the Gagala Lake, it seems a frog, Manduka, apprehended a sign in the Blessed One's voice. A cowherd who was standing leaning on a stick put his stick on the frog's head and crushed it. He died and was straightway reborn in a gilded, divine palace, twelve leagues broad, in the realm of the thirty-three, the Tavatimsa. He found himself there, as if waking up from sleep, amidst a whole host of celestial nymphs, and he exclaimed, So, I have actually been reborn here. What deed did I do? When he sought for the reason, he found it was none other than his apprehension of the sign in the Blessed One's voice. He went with his divine palace at once to the Blessed One and paid homage at his feet. Though the Blessed One knew about it, he asked him, Who now pays homage at my feet, shining with glory of success, illuminating all around with beauty so outstanding? Manduka replies, In my last life I was a frog. The waters of Bapand my home, a cowherd's crook ended my life while listening to your Dhamma. The Blessed One taught him the Dhamma. Eighty-four thousand creatures gained penetration of the Dhamma, and as soon as the deity's son became established in the fruition of stream entry, he smiled and then vanished. So, the Buddha did not just teach gods and men, but women as well, although he probably needed to tame more men than women, as men act like crazy demons statistically more often than women, as well as animals, spirits, and whoever sought his counsel and blessing, turning no one away. Thus he was the incomparable tamer of those to be tamed and teacher of gods and men. The eighth quality is about Buddha being enlightened. And the text says this. He is enlightened, Buddha, with the knowledge that belongs to the fruit of liberation, since everything that can be known has been discovered by him. Or alternatively, he discovered, Buddhi, the four truths by himself and awakened, Bodesi, others to them. Thus, and for other such reasons, he is enlightened, Buddha. And in order to explain this meaning, the whole passage in the Nidesha beginning thus. He is the discoverer, Bujitar, of the truths. Thus he is enlightened. He is the awakened, Bodhetar, of the generation. Thus he is enlightened. Or the same passage from the Patisambhita should be quoted in detail. In regards to the Buddha being blessed, blessed, Bhagavanta, is a term signifying the respect and veneration accorded to him as the highest of all beings and distinguished by his special qualities. This name, blessed, is one signifying a particular acquirement. It is not made by Mahamaya or King Suddhodana or by the 80,000 kinsmen or by distinguished deities like Saka, Santusita, and others. And this is said by the general of the law, meaning his chief disciple Shariputra. Blessed, this is not a name made by a mother. 
This name Buddha, which signifies final liberation, is a realistic description of Buddhas, enlightened ones, the blessed ones, together with their obtainment of omniscient knowledge at the root of an enlightenment tree. Now, in order to explain the special qualities signified by this name, they cite the following stanza. Bhagi bhaji, bhagi, vibhattava iti, akashi bhagavanti garuti bhagyava, bahuti naiheti subhavitattano, bhagavanto so bhagavati vichati, which roughly translates to, the reverend one has blessings, is a frequenter, a partaker, a possessor of what has been analyzed. He has caused abolishing. He is fortunate. He has fully developed himself in many ways. He has gone to the end of becoming. Thus, he is called blessed. And the meaning of these words should be understood according to the method of explanation given in the Nidesha. The Nidesha method is this. The word blessed, Bhagava, is a term of respect. Moreover, he has abolished bhaga, greed. Thus he is blessed, bhagava. He has abolished hate, delusion, views, craving, defilement. Thus he is blessed. He divided bhaji, analyzed vibhaji, and classified pati vibhaji, the dhamma treasure. Thus he is blessed, bhagava. He makes an end of the kinds of becoming, bhavanam antakaroti. Thus he is blessed. He has developed bhavita, the body and virtue of the mind and understanding, thus he is blessed. Or the blessed one is a frequenter, bhaji, of remote jungle thickets, resting places with little noise, with few voices, with lonely atmosphere, where one can lie hidden from people, favorable to retreat, thus he is blessed, bhagava. He can also be called blessed when he can be called one who has frequented bhattava, owing to his having frequented, cultivated, repeatedly practiced such mundane and supermundane, higher-than-human states as the heavenly, the divine, and the noble abidings, as bodily, mental, and existential seclusion, as the void, the desireless, and the signless liberations, and others as well. Or the Blessed One is a partaker, buggy, of robes, alms food, resting place, and the requisite of medicine as cure for the sick, thus he is blessed. Or he is a partaker of the taste of meaning, the taste of law, the taste of deliverance, the higher virtue, the higher consciousness, the higher understanding. Thus he is blessed, Bhagava. Or he is a partaker of the four jhanas, the four measureless states, the four immaterial states. Thus he is blessed. Or he is a partaker of the eight liberations, the eight bases of mastery, the nine successive attainments. Thus he is blessed. Or he is a partaker of the ten developments of perception, the ten kasina attainments, concentration due to mindfulness of breathing, the attainment due to foulness. Thus he is blessed. Or he is a partaker of the ten powers of perfect ones, of the four kinds of perfect confidence, of the four discriminations, of the six kinds of direct knowledge, of the six enlightened ones' states. Thus he is blessed. Blessed One, Bhagava, this is not a name made by a mother. This name, Blessed One, is a designation based on realization. And by his fortunateness, Bhagyavatta, is indicated the excellence of his material body, which bears a hundred characteristics of merit. And by his having abolished defects, Bhagadosatta, is indicated the excellence of his Dharma body. Likewise, by his fortunateness is indicated the esteem of worldly people, and by his having abolished defects, the esteem of those who resemble him. And by his fortunateness is indicated that he is fit to be relied on by laymen. And by his having abolished defects, that he is fit to be relied on by those gone forth into homelessness. 
and when both have relied on him, they acquire relief from bodily and mental pain, as well as help with both material and dhamma gifts, and they are rendered capable of finding both mundane and supramundane bliss. He is also called blessed, since he is associated with blessings, bagehi vyutata, such as those of the following kind, in the sense that he has those blessings, bhaga asashanti. Now in the world, the word blessing is used for six things, namely, lordship, dhamma, fame, glory, wish, and endeavor. He has supreme lordship over his own mind, either of the kind reckoned as mundane and consisting in minuteness, lightness, etc., meaning an ordinary mind, or that complete in all aspects, and likewise the supermundane dhamma. And he has exceedingly pure fame, spread through the three worlds, acquired through the special quality of veracity. And he has glory of all limbs, perfect in every aspect, which is capable of comforting the eyes of people eager to see his material body. And he has his wish, in other words, the production of what is wanted, since whatever is wanted and needed by him as beneficial to himself or others is then and there produced for him. And he has the endeavor, in other words, the right effort, which is the reason why the whole world venerates him. He can also be called blessed when he can be called a possessor of what has been analyzed, vibhattava, owing to his having analyzed and clarified all states into the three classes, beginning with the profitable, states into such classes as aggregates, bases, elements, truth, faculties, dependent origination, etc., or the noble truth of suffering into the senses of oppressing, being formed, burning, and changing, and that of origin into the senses of accumulating, source, bond, and impediment, and that of cessation into the senses of escape, seclusion, being unformed and deathless, and that of the path into the senses of outlet, cause, seeing, and predominance, having analyzed, having revealed, having shown them, is what is meant. And there's no commentary on this part, and it's kind of terse, but uh, using my own intellect, we can just take it to mean that he is blessed in the sense that he has analyzed and clarified the Four Noble Truths. Continuing on. He can also be called blessed, when he can be called one who has rejected going in the kinds of becoming, vantagamano bhavesu, because in the three kinds of becoming, bhava, the going, gamana, in other words, craving, has been rejected, vanta, by him. So this section has a bunch more examples on how this word Bhagavan can mean many things related to why the Buddha is blessed. But from what I've given you, I think you can gather that the Buddha is indeed blessed. So Buddha Gosa concludes this section on recollection of the Buddha with the following paragraphs. As long as the meditator recollects the special qualities of the Buddha in this way, for this and this reason the Blessed One is accomplished, fully enlightened, endowed with clear vision and virtuous conduct, sublime, the knower of the worlds, the incomparable leader of men to be tamed, the teacher of gods and men, enlightened and blessed, then, on that occasion, his mind is not obsessed by greed, or obsessed by hate, or obsessed by delusion. His mind has rectitude on that occasion, being inspired by the perfect one. So when he has thus suppressed the hindrances of preventing obsession by greed, etc., and his mind faces the meditation subject with rectitude, then his applied thought and sustained thought occur with tendency toward the enlightened one's special qualities. As he continues to exercise applied thought and sustained thought upon the enlightened one's special qualities, happiness will arise in him. With his mind happy, with happiness as approximate cause, his bodily and mental disturbances are tranquilized by tranquility. When the disturbances have been tranquilized, bodily and mental bliss arise in him. 
when he is blissful, his mind, with the enlightened one's special qualities for its object, becomes concentrated, and so the jhana factors eventually rise in a single moment. But owing to the profundity of the enlightened one's special qualities, or else owing to his being occupied in recollecting special qualities of many sorts, the jhana is only access and does not reach absorption, and that access jhana itself is known as recollection of the Buddha too, because it arises with the recollection of the enlightened one's special qualities as the means. When a bhikkhu is devoted to this recollection of the Buddha, he is respectful and deferential towards the master. He attains fullness of faith, mindfulness, and understanding and merit. He has much happiness and gladness. He conquers fear and dread. He is able to endure pain. He comes to feel as if he were living in the Master's presence, and his body, when the recollection of the Buddha's special qualities dwells in it, becomes as worthy of veneration as a shrine room. His mind tends towards the plane of the Buddhas. When he encounters an opportunity for transgression, he has awareness of conscience and shame as vivid as though he were face to face with the Master, and if he penetrates no higher, he is at least headed for a happy destiny. Now, when a man is truly wise, his constant task will surely be this recollection of the Buddha, blessed with such mighty potency. This, firstly, is the section dealing with the recollection of the Enlightened One in the detailed explanation. That thoroughly and beautifully composed treatise by Buddha Gosa, with quotations and explanations, is a beautiful meditation of what the Buddha was like, how he taught, why he is renowned, called accomplished, sublime, and so forth. But what a Buddha is maybe was not touched upon to my satisfaction. Yes, the Buddha is omniscient. Yes, he is a brilliant teacher, and his realization only equaled by the unequaled. But what meaning do these abilities have for our world? If you foster some credulity towards this story, the Buddha was obviously very special. But what does this have to do with us? When the Buddha first realized nirvana and set out to teach, he came across the path of a man who was enthralled with the Buddha's radiant appearance. The man began asking him, Are you a god? Are you an avatar? Are you a wizard? Are you a human man? And to each Buddha replied, No. Finally, the man asked, Then what are you? The Buddha replied, I am awake. This very famous story gives us a great clue into the ontological status of the Buddha that ties his realization into the nature of his own reality with the reality of all beings. This might sound like a paradox or a play of words, but what the Buddha is, who the Buddha is, is intrinsically tied to what we are, who you are. The Buddha is the one who truly became himself. But what does that mean? What does the Buddha have in common with all beings? And what do we all have in common with each other? The answer has to do with the nature of mind and the nature of phenomenon, what is the relationship with your subjective experience and your outside environment, and are they really different things? I will continue on with a few excerpts from the Sutta Pitaka of the Pali Canon, which are the canonical texts of the Theravada tradition. And again, I don't want to get into the difference between the Mahayana or universal vehicle texts and the split that happened in the understanding of the Dharma, but later on in the next podcast, I will go over some Mahayana sutras that go into more elaborate and cosmic implications of this word Buddha. It is very important to understand that if you are a Buddhist or are studying Buddhism, it is very commonly stated that the Theravada is early Buddhism, or understood to be the real Buddhism that Buddha taught before the Mahayana people came around a lot later and invented new scriptures and put words into the Buddha's mouth. As a Mahayana guy myself, I find this assumption very problematic when we find that some of the earliest archaeological Buddhist artifacts are Mahayana sutras found in present-day Afghanistan and Pakistan. 
and that the largest and most dominant Buddhist institutions of the ancient world in India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and Gandhar all held the Mahayana text to be authoritative and authentic, and that many of the towering figures of Buddhism, like Nagarjuna, Kumarajiva, Bodhidharma, Dignaga, and Chandrakirti were all Mahayana adherents. It's been said of scholars of Buddhism that treat it as an interesting anthropological subject by those who are from within the tradition that they are looking for ways to drag down the Buddha and the great masters of the past to our level out of sheer cynical skepticism that such things could never have occurred and any reasonable person can know this to be true. And it's not hard to agree with skeptics, for how could you know the truth of something if you don't care to find out for yourself, especially when conjecture is far easier? It's very well understood within the tradition that Buddha always taught disciples in a context, at a certain time, for a certain reason. He didn't go around giving the same speech over and over again. He, quote, untied the knots, end quote, of beings who were stuck. For the arrogant, he taught humility. For the dull-witted, he taught intelligence. For the greedy, he taught generosity. For the violent, he taught kindness. For those who were stuck on impermanence, he taught true permanence. And for those stuck on permanence, he taught true impermanence. Sentient beings are of infinite capabilities, tendencies, capacities, in infinite karmic situations, and thus his teachings reflected the endlessly varied necessities required to free people from mental bondage. So a Mahayanist would never say that the Theravada teachings are untrue or not the real teachings, and that the Mahayana are. The Theravada teachings are good for those who need them, and they, without a doubt, lead to the full awakening of a Buddha and are the foundation of the entire Buddhist path and tradition. But in terms of the deepest meaning of the Buddha Dharma, there were three turnings of the wheel that took place. The first was of the Four Noble Truths, which are expressed repeatedly in the Pali Canon, but the second and third turnings belong to the Mahayana category of teachings, and these were the teachings on emptiness and the teachings on Buddha nature, which are concepts expanded upon in a number of sutras like the Prajnaparamita Sutras, the Vimalakirti Nirdesha, the Lankavatara, and the Tathagatagarbha Sutra, and so on. The Mahayana take on a more expansive and all-encompassing view of reality, where it is demonstrated that the universe is profuse with blessings of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, that the Dharma pervades all of reality, that we live in a realm of infinite potentiality and purity, where everything can become the path to enlightenment with wisdom and discernment, and that we ourselves are the great vehicle. Our psychophysical aggregates are the very stuff that enlightenment is made of, and that at their deepest core, all beings are fully endowed with Buddha nature, the potential to become a Buddha. But before we get into these, the Pali Canon contains a vast array of the descriptions of the Buddha, his teachings and his disciples, so there is no substitute for reading them for yourself and getting the direct transmission of the beauty and rigor of the Dharma as it was passed down. But for the sake of the subject of the Buddha's powers, I found some pure gold to draw upon for our investigation. From the Mahasihananda Sutta, the great discourse on the lion's roar, we hear from a young man who was frustrated that the Buddha only teaches a Dhamma merely hammered out by reason, and that he does not have any supernormal states worthy of noble ones, and complained this to Shariputra. And when Shariputra relayed this statement to the Buddha, the Buddha replied with this, Shariputra, that blessed one is accomplished, fully enlightened, perfect in true knowledge and conduct, sublime, knower of worlds, incomparable leader of persons to be tamed, teacher of gods and humans, enlightened and blessed. He will never infer of me according to Dhamma. The Blessed One enjoys the various kinds of supernormal powers. Having been one, he becomes many. 
Having been many, he becomes one. He appears and vanishes. He goes unhindered through a wall, through an enclosure, through a mountain, as though through space. He dives in and out of the earth, as though it were water. He walks on water without sinking, as if it were earth. Seated cross-legged, he travels in space like a bird. With his hand, he touches and strokes the moon and sun, so powerful and mighty. He wields bodily mastery, even as far as the Brahma worlds. And he will never infer of me, according to Dhamma. With the divine ear element, which is purified and surpasses the human, the Blessed One hears both kinds of sounds, the heavenly and the human, those that are far as well as near. And he will never infer of me, according to Dhamma, that Blessed One encompasses with his own mind the minds of other beings, other persons. He understands a mind affected by lust as affected by lust, and a mind unaffected by lust as unaffected by lust. He understands a mind affected by hate as affected by hate, and a mind unaffected by hate as unaffected by hate. He understands a mind affected by delusion as affected by delusion, and a mind unaffected by delusion as unaffected by delusion. He understands a contracted mind as contracted, and a distracted mind as distracted. He understands an exalted mind as exalted, and an unexalted mind as unexalted. He understands a surpassed mind as surpassed, and an unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed. He understands a concentrated mind as concentrated, and an unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated. He understands a liberated mind as liberated, and an unliberated mind as unliberated. So from these couple paragraphs, we hear that the Buddha can fly, disappear, reappear, walk through a mountain as through space, multiply his body into many. He can hear sounds all over the universe and in the heavens beyond. He can read people's minds, and not just some people's minds, but everyone's minds, and understands their mental states and capabilities and habitual tendencies. But these power that the Buddha has, some of which he shares with the Arhats, so at this point, he expands upon his power to include the ten powers of a Tathagata. Shariputra. The Tathagata has these ten Tathagata's powers, possessing which he claims the herd leader's place, roars his lion's roar in the assemblies, and sets rolling the wheel of Brahma. What are these ten? Number one. Here, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, the possible as possible, and the impossible as impossible, and that is the Tathagata's power, that the Tathagata has, by virtue of which he claims the herd leader's place, roars his lion's roar in the assemblies, and sets rolling the wheel of Brahma. Number two. Again, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, the results of actions undertaken, past, future, and present, with possibilities and with causes. That, too, is a Tathagata's power. 3. Again, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, the ways leading to all destinations. That, too, is a Tathagata's power. 4. Again, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, the world with its many and different elements. That, too, is a Tathagata's power. 5. Again, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, how beings have different inclinations. That, too, is a Tathagata's power. 6. Again, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, the disposition of the faculties of other beings, other persons. That, too, is a Tathagata's power. 7. Again, the Tathagata understands, as it actually is, the defilement, the cleansing and emergence in regard to the jhanas, liberations, concentrations, and attainments. That, too, is a Tathagata's power. 8. Again, the Tathagata recollects his manifold past lives, that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, ten births, 
20 births, 30 births, 40 births, 50, 100, 1,000, 100,000, many eons of world contractions, many eons of world expansion, many eons of world contraction and expansion. There I was so named, of such a clan, with such an appearance, such was my nutriment, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life term, and passing away from there, I reappeared elsewhere, and there too I was named, of such a clan, with such an appearance, such was my nutriment, such my experience of pleasure and pain, such my life term, and passing away from there, I reappeared here. Thus with their aspects and particulars, he recollects his manifold past lives. That too is a Tathagata's power. 9. Again with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, the Tathagata sees beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and he understands how beings pass on according to their actions thus. These worthy beings, who are ill-conducted in body, speech, and mind, revilers of noble ones, wrong in their views, giving effect to wrong views in their actions, on the dissolution of the body, after death have reappeared in a state of deprivation, in bad destinations, in perdition, even in hell. But these worthy beings, who are well-conducted in body, speech, and mind, not revilers of noble ones, right in their views, giving effect to right view in their actions, on the dissolution of the body, after death, have reappeared in a good destination, even in the heavenly world. Thus with the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, he sees beings passing away and reappearing, inferior and superior, fair and ugly, fortunate and unfortunate, and he understands how beings pass on according to their actions. That too is a Tathagata's power. 10. Again, by realizing it for himself with direct knowledge, the Tathagata here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of mind and deliverance by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints. That too is a Tathagata's power that a Tathagata has, by virtue of which he claims the herd leader's place, roars his lion's roar in the assemblies, and sets rolling the wheel of Brahma. Now, if I was a real Dharma teacher, I would go line by line and explain each of these powers in some detail, but because of time and my basic lack of clarity on what these precisely mean, and lack of realization and insight in my own experience about what these mean, with regards to the jhanas, liberations, and so on, I will have to leave it up to you, the listeners, to either use your own wisdom to interpret these, or to find a qualified teacher to expound upon these in a deliberate and trustworthy manner. I find as I do this podcast how humbling it is to see my limitations in understanding, and that I'm not the hotshot Dharma nerd that my ego would have me believe. The Buddha goes on to speak about his four fearlessnesses, or four kinds of intrepidity. Shariputra, the Tathagata, has these four kinds of intrepidity, possessing which he claims the herd leader's place, roars his lion's roar in the assemblies, and sets rolling the wheel of Brahma. What are these four? Here, I see no ground on which any recluse, Brahmin or God, Mara or Brahma, or anyone at all in the world could, in accord with the Dhamma, accuse me thus. While you claim full enlightenment, you are not fully enlightened in regard to certain things, and seeing no ground for that, I abide in safety, fearlessness, and intrepidity. I see no ground on which any recluse, or anyone at all, could accuse me thus. While you claim to have destroyed the taints, these taints are undestroyed by you." And seeing no ground for that, I abide in safety, fearlessness, and intrepidity. I see no ground on which any recluse or anyone at all could accuse me thus. 
Those things called obstructions by you are not able to obstruct one who engages in them, and seeing no ground for that, I abide in safety, fearlessness, and intrepidity. I see no ground on which any recluse or any one at all could accuse me thus. When you teach the Dhamma to someone, it does not lead him when he practices it to the complete destruction of suffering. And seeing no ground for that, I abide in safety, fearlessness, and intrepidity. A Tathagata has these four kinds of intrepidity. As regards the eight assemblies, the Buddha says thus, Shariputra, there are these eight assemblies. What are the eight? An assembly of nobles, an assembly of Brahmins, an assembly of householders, an assembly of recluses, an assembly of gods of the heaven of the four great kings, an assembly of gods of the heaven of the thirty-three, an assembly of Mara's retinue, an assembly of Brahmas, possessing of these four kinds of intrepidity, the Tathagata approaches and enters these eight assemblies. Shariputra, these are four kinds of generation. What are the four? Egg-born generation, womb-born generation, moisture-born generation, and spontaneous generation. And this section expands on these types of generation, which are the ways that beings are born into the world. Uh, but I'm just going to skip ahead. On the five destinations and nirvana. Shariputra, there are these five destinations. What are the five? Hell, the animal realm the realm of ghosts, human beings, and gods. I understand hell and the path leading the way to hell, and I also understand how one who enters the path will, on the dissolution of the body, after death, reappear in a state of deprivation, in an unhappy destination, in perdition, in hell. So from this paragraph, we can see that the Buddhists definitely believe in hell, and that if you don't check yourself, you could wreck yourself. And he uses the same prose pattern to describe how he knows the way to the other five destinations, how he clearly sees what causes bring about those results. And about the sixth destination, which is nirvana, he says this, Suppose there were a pond with clean, agreeable, cool water, transparent, with smooth banks, delightful, and nearby a dense wood, and then a man scorched and exhausted by hot weather, weary, parched, and thirsty, came by a path, going in one way only, and directed towards that same pond. Then a man with good sight, on hearing him, would say, This person so behaves, so conducts himself, he has taken such a path, that he will come to this same pond. And then later on, he sees that he has plunged into the pond, bathed, drunk, and relieved all of his distress, fatigue, and fever, and has come out again, and is sitting or lying in the wood, experiencing extremely pleasant feelings. So too, by encompassing mind with mind, I understand a person thus. This person so behaves, so conducts himself, has taken such a path, that by realizing it for himself, with direct knowledge, here and now, will enter upon and abide in the deliverance of mind, in deliverance by wisdom that are taintless, with the destruction of the taints. And then later on I see, that by realizing it for himself, with direct knowledge, he here and now enters upon and abides in the deliverance of mind, in deliverance by wisdom that are taintless with the destruction of the taints, and is experiencing extremely pleasant feelings. And so moving on to the Bodhisattva's austerities. Shariputra, I recall having lived a holy life possessing four factors. I have practiced asceticism, the extreme of asceticism. I have practiced coarseness, the extreme of coarseness. I have practiced scrupulousness, the extreme of scrupulousness. I have practiced seclusion, the extreme of seclusion. Such was my asceticism, Shariputra, that I went naked, rejecting conventions, licking my hands, not coming when asked, not stopping when asked. I did not accept food brought or food specially made, or an invitation to a meal. 
I receive nothing from a pot, from a bowl, across a threshold, across a stick, across a pestle. I was an eater of greens, or millet, or wild rice, or hide parings, or moss, or rice bran, or rice scum, or sesame flour, or grass, or cow dung. I lived on forest roots and fruits. I fed on fallen fruits. I clothed myself in hemp, in hemp-mixed cloth in shrouds, in refuse rags, in tree bark, in antelope hide, in strips of antelope hide, in kusa grass fabric, in bark fabric, in wood shaving fabric, in head hair wool, in animal wool, in owl's wings. I was one who pulled out hair and beard, pursuing the practice of pulling out hair and beard. I was one who stood continuously, rejecting seats. I was one who squatted continuously, devoted to maintaining the squatting position. I was one who used a mattress of spikes. I made a mattress of spikes my bed. I dwelt pursuing the practice of bathing in water three times daily, including the evening. Thus, in such a variety of ways, I dwelt pursuing the practices of tormenting and mortifying the body. Such was my asceticism. Such was my coarseness, Shariputra, that as the bowls of the Tinduka tree accumulating over the years cakes and flakes off, so too dust and dirt accumulating over the years caked off my body and flaked off. It never occurred to me, oh, let me scrub off this dust and dirt with my hand, or let me rub this dust and dirt off with this hand. It never occurred to me thus. Such was my coarseness, such was my scrupulousness, Shariputra, that I was always mindful in stepping forward and stepping backward. I was full of pity even for the beings in a drop of water. Let me not hurt the tiny creatures in the crevices of the ground. Such was my scrupulousness, such was my seclusion, Shariputra, that I would plunge into some forest and dwell there. And when I saw a cowherd or shepherd or someone gathering grass or sticks or a woodsman, I would flee from grove to grove, from thicket to thicket, from hollow to hollow, from hillock to hillock. Why was that? So that they should not see me or I see them. Just as a forest-bred deer, unseeing human beings, flees from grove to grove, from thicket to thicket, from hollow to hollow, from hillock to hillock, so too, when I saw a cowherd or shepherd, such was my seclusion. Then he talks about how he ate cow poop and his own pee and poop until they ran out, uh, but I'm just going to skip that part and just go on a little further. I would plunge into some awe-inspiring grove and dwell there, a grove so awe-inspiring that normally it would make a man's hair stand up if he were not free from lust. When those cold wintry nights came, during the eight days' interval of frost, I would dwell by night in the open and by day in the grove. In the last month of the hot season, I would dwell by day in the open and by night in the grove. I would make my bed in a charnel ground, with bones of the dead for a pillow. A cowherd's boy came up and spat on me, urinated on me, threw dirt at me, and poked sticks into my ears. Yet I do not recall that I ever aroused an evil mind of hate against them. Such was my abiding in equanimity. Through feeding on a single cola fruit a day, my body reached a state of extreme emaciation. Because of eating so little, my limbs became like the jointed segments of vine stems or bamboo stems. Because of eating so little, my backside became like a camel's hoof. Because of eating so little, the projections on my spine stood forth like corded beads. Because of eating so little, my ribs jutted out as gaunt as the crazy rafters of an old roofless barn. Because of eating so little, the gleam of my eyes sank far down in their sockets, looking like a gleam of water which has sunk far down in a deep well. Because of eating so little, my scalp shriveled and withered as a green bitter gourd shrivels and withers in the wind and sun. Because of eating so little, my belly skin adhered to my backbone. Thus, if I touched my belly skin, I encountered my backbone, and if I touched my backbone, I encountered my belly skin. 
because of eating so little, if I tried to ease my body by rubbing my limbs with my hands, the hair rotted at its root, fell from my body as I rubbed. Yet, Shariputra, by such conduct, by such practice, by such performance of austerities, I did not attain any superhuman states, any distinction in knowledge, and vision worthy of the noble ones. Why was that? Because I did not attain that noble wisdom, which when attained is noble and emancipating, and leads the one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. Then he goes on to describe how various practitioners held views that liberation can be found by eating small amounts of rice and beans, or by passing through many rounds of rebirth, or by going to the heavenly abodes, or by performing sacrifices of animals, or, or food, or clothes, or by worshipping fire. And he said that there is no heavenly abode he has not been to, or type of fire he has not worshipped, or sacrifice he has not performed, and yet none of those things gave him liberation. He then says how some Brahmins and recluses hold the view that clear and lucid wisdom only lasts as long as one has a young body with black hair and that wisdom fades with age. But the Buddha then describes how even if he had disciples that questioned him on the Dhamma, their whole lives continuing to question the Buddha without cease and then died at the end of a hundred-year lifespan, Shariputra, even if you have to carry me about on a bed, still there would be no change in the lucidity of the Tathagata's wisdom. So, with all of these views, the Buddha said, If someone were to say these things, I know from myself that they are untrue because he experienced all of these things and could say with direct experience that these views and practices do not lead to the permanent end of suffering and delusion. He concludes the sutta by saying this, Rightly speaking, were it to be said of anyone, a being not subject to delusion has appeared in the world for the welfare and happiness of many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. It is of me, indeed, that rightly speaking this should be said. So that was a lot of information. He covered the ten powers, the knowledges of the five realms, the four intrepidities, the various views that religious leaders had at the time, and the extreme ascetic practices and self-mortification that he did, all of which did not bring him to the citadel of Nirvana. But almost all of these practices can still be found in India today. And if you go there and seek out some self-mortifiers, you will see exactly what the Buddha just described. I saw a video of a guy that held his arms straight up in the air for like 20 years and it got emaciated and stuck in that position and then his right hand shriveled and started growing back into the wrist in a grotesque fashion and he seemed fine with it and thought that I was going to get him to enlightenment. And it sounds crazy and the Buddha said that it is crazy and that it won't lead to enlightenment and that they're barking up the wrong tree. And why was that? The Buddha asks, because I did not attain that noble wisdom, which when attained is noble and emancipating, and leads one who practices in accordance with it to the complete destruction of suffering. So again, if I had my way, I would make a 10 hour long podcast and cover every detail of that sutta. But this is a fast paced world and I have a lot more to get to. So please, again, in your own time, if you feel inspired, that was the Mahasihananda Sutta, and you can meditate on these things for yourself. The best kind of Dharma is the Dharma that you absorb slowly at your own pace with rapt attention and deep interest to know the material. So these are the powers of a Buddha from the Pali Canon. And next we are going to talk about what the Buddha looked like, his physical appearance. I know that we've all seen statues of a Buddha and how he looks kind of alienish, like a human, but slightly more than human. 
And these images come from pure visions that beings have had, but also from the descriptions in the sutras themselves. And what is interesting and inspiring about what are called the 32 marks of a great being that the Buddha exhibits is that all these physical attributes come from aspects of one's character that has been cultivated and perfected. And because the Buddha, over the course of many eons of lives, perfected these aspects of his mind, now he has a visage that reflects his inner transformation. So from the Digha Nikaya, the Lakana Sutta, the discourse on the 32 characteristics and how one gets them. The Lord said, There are monks, these 32 marks peculiar to a great man, and for that great man who possesses them, only two careers are open. If he lives the household life, he will become a ruler, a wheel-turning righteous monarch of the law, conqueror of the four quarters, who has established the security of his realm and is possessed of the seven treasures. These are the wheel treasure, the elephant treasure, the horse treasure, the jewel treasure, the woman treasure, the householder treasure, and as seventh, the counselor treasure. He has more than a thousand sons who are heroes of heroic stature, conquerors of the hostile army. He dwells having conquered the sea-girt land without stick or sword by the law. But if he goes forth from the household life into hermit life, then he will become an arahant, a fully enlightened Buddha, one who draws back the veil from the world. And what are these thirty-two marks of a great man? 1. He has feet with level tread. This is one of the marks of a great man. How does one get these level feet? The Buddha explains how being unwavering in good conduct of body, speech, and thought, in generosity, self-discipline, observance of the fast day, in honoring parents, ascetics, and brahmins, and the head of the clan, and in other highly meritorious acts, by performing that kama, can be reborn in the devil realm, and then taking leave of the god realm, take rebirth in the human realm, and then has these level tread feet. And if he goes forth into hermit life, he will become a fully enlightened Buddha. As such, how does he benefit? He has a large retinue. He is surrounded by monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen, devas and humans, asuras and nagas, and gandharvas. That is his benefit as a Buddha. 2. On the soles of his feet are wheels complete with fellow and hub. How does one get these feet with fellows and hub? A being who lived for the happiness of the many as a dispeller of fright and terror, provider of lawful protection and shelter, and supplying all necessities, by performing that kama, can be reborn in the devil realm, and then taking leave of the devil realm, takes rebirth in the human realm, having these feet with wheels complete with fellow and hub. And if he goes forth into a hermit's life, he will become a fully enlightened Buddha. As such, how does he benefit? He has a large retinue. He is surrounded by monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen, devas and humans, asuras and nagas, and gandharvas. That is his benefit as a Buddha. And 3, 4, and 15 are grouped together. He has projecting heels. He has long fingers and toes, and his body is divinely straight. The Tathagata, being born a human being, rejecting the taking of life and abstaining from it, and laying aside stick and sword, dwelt kind and compassionate, having friendship and sympathy for all living beings. By performing that kama, he was reborn in a happy state. As a Buddha, how does he benefit? He has long lived. No foe, whether an ascetic or Brahmin, a Deva or Mara or Brahma, or anyone in the world, can possibly take his life. That is his benefit as a Buddha. Now, five and six are together. He has soft and tender hands and feet, and his hands and feet are net-like, or webbed. And I've heard this described as actual webbed hands with skin like a frog, or that there are webs of energy that connect his fingers. 
And about these characteristics, it says this, The Tathagata, being born a human being, made himself beloved through the four bases of sympathy, generosity, pleasing speech, beneficial conduct, and impartiality. And on returning to this earth, he acquired these two marks of a great man, soft and tender hands and feet, and net-like hands and feet. As a Buddha, how does he benefit? All of his followers are well disposed to him. Monks, nuns, laymen, and laywomen, devas and humans, asuras, nagas, and gandharvas. That is his benefit as a Buddha. And seven and fourteen are grouped together. He has high raised ankles. His body hair grows upward, bluish black like calarium, growing in rings to the right. The Tathagata, being born a human being, became a speaker to the people about their welfare, about Dhamma, explaining this to people and being a bearer of welfare and happiness to beings, a dispenser of Dhamma. On returning to this earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, high raised ankles and upward growing body hairs. As a Buddha, he became the chief, foremost, highest supreme amongst all beings. This was his benefit as a Buddha. And number eight, his legs are like antelopes. The Tathagata became a skillful exponent of craft, a science, a way of conduct or action, thinking, what can I learn quickly and acquire quickly, practice without undue weariness? On returning to this earth, he acquires this mark of a great man, legs like an antelope. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, who quickly acquires whatever things benefit a ruler, the things that pertain to a ruler, delight him and are appropriate to him, as a Buddha likewise. And number 9 and 19 are put together. He is proportioned like a banyan tree. Standing and without bending, he can touch and rub his knees with either hand, meaning he has extremely long arms. The Tathagata, considering the welfare of people, knew the nature of each, knew each one himself, and knew how each one differed. This one deserves such and such, that one deserves so and so. So he distinguished them. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of a great man. He is proportioned like a banyan tree, and standing without bending, he can touch and rub his knees with both hands. As a Buddha, he will be wealthy and rich, and these will be his treasures. Faith, morality, moral shame, moral dread, learning, renunciation, and wisdom. 10. His male organs are enclosed in a sheath. Now, that might kind of sound like, what the heck is that? But I guess we've never seen a Buddha for ourselves and his organs enclosed in a sheath. So we're just going to have to take the text's word for it. So for how that characteristic comes about. The Tathagata reunited those long lost with relatives, friends, and companions who had missed them. Reunited mother with child and child with mother, father with child and child with father, brother with brother, brother with sister and sister with brother, making them one again with great rejoicing. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. His male organs are enclosed in a sheath, and being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, he will have numerous sons, more than a thousand sons, powerfully built heroes, crushers of the enemy host, as a Buddha likewise. If he leaves the world, still more with children he will be endowed. Those who depend on his word, and so, renounced or not, this sign such benefits as this portends. Number 11. His complexion is bright, the color of gold. The Tathagata lived without anger, perfectly unruffled, and even after many words had been uttered was not abusive, or agitated, or wrathful, or aggressive, displaying neither anger nor hatred nor resentment, but was in the habit of giving away fine, soft rugs, cloaks, 
fine linen, cotton, silk, and woolen stuffs. On returning to this earth, he acquired this mark of the great man, a bright complexion, the color of gold. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, he will receive such fine stuffs, as a Buddha likewise. And number twelve. His skin is delicate and so smooth that no dust can adhere to his body. The Tathagata approached an ascetic or Brahmin and asked, Sir, what is the good and what is the bad? What is blameworthy and what is not? What course is to be followed and what is not? What, if I do it, will be my lasting sorrow and harm? What to my lasting happiness? On returning to this earth, he acquired this mark of a great man. His skin is so delicate and smooth that no dust can adhere to his body. As a Buddha, he will have great wisdom, extensive wisdom, joyous wisdom, swift wisdom, penetrative wisdom, discerning wisdom, and among all beings there will be none equal to him or superior to him in wisdom. Number 16. He has the seven convex surfaces. The Tathagata becomes a giver of fine food, delicious and tasty, hard and soft, and of drinks. By performing that kama, he was reborn in a heavenly world. Falling away from there and being reborn here on earth, he acquired this mark of a great man, the seven convex surfaces, on both hands, both feet, both shoulders, and his trunk. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, how does he benefit? He receives fine food and drinks, delicious and tasty, hard and soft, as a Buddha likewise. Now, 17, 18, and 20 are all together. The front part of his body is like a lion's. There is no hollow between his shoulders. His bust is evenly rounded. The Tathagata desired the welfare of the many, their advantage, comfort, freedom from bondage, thinking how they might increase in faith, morality, learning, renunciation, in dhamma, in wisdom, in wealth and possessions, in bipeds and quadrupeds, in wives and children of servants, workers and helpers, in relatives, friends and acquaintances. On returning to earth, he acquired these three marks of the great man. The front part of his body is like a lion's. There is no hollow between his shoulders, and his bust is evenly rounded. As a Buddha, he cannot lose anything, faith, morality, learning, renunciation, or wisdom. Losing nothing, he will succeed in all things. So, with number 21, he has a perfect sense of taste. The Tathagata was one who avoided harming beings by hand, by stones, stick, or sword. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man. He has a perfect sense of taste. Whatever he touches with the tip of his tongue, he tastes in his throat, and the taste is dispersed everywhere. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, he will suffer little distress or sickness. His digestion will be good, being neither too cold nor too hot. As a Buddha, likewise, he is also equable and tolerant of exertion. And number 22. He has jaws like a lion's. The Tathagata rejecting idle chatter, spoke at the right time, what was correct and to the point, dhamma and discipline, and what was bound up with profit. On returning to earth, he acquired this mark of the great man, jaws like a lion. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler, he cannot be overcome by any human foe or opponent. As a Buddha, he cannot be overcome by any foe or hostile thing, from within or without, by lust, hatred, delusion, by any ascetic or Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anything in the world. Number 23 and 25 are put together. He has 40 teeth, and there are no spaces between his teeth. Rejecting slander, abstaining from it, not repeating there what he had heard here to the detriment of these, of repeating what he had heard there to the detriment of those, abandoning false speech. The ascetic Gotama dwells restraining from false speech, 
a truth speaker, one to be relied on, trustworthy, dependable, not a deceiver of the world. Abandoning malicious speech, he does not repeat there what he has heard here to the detriment of these, or repeat here what he has heard there to the detriment of those. Abandoning harsh speech, he refrains from it. He speaks whatever is blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the heart, urbane, pleasing and attractive to the multitude. Abandoning idle chatter, he speaks at the right time, what is correct and to the point, of dhamma and discipline. He is a speaker whose words are to be treasured, seasonable, reasoned, well-defined, and connected with the goal. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, forty teeth and with no spaces between them. Being endowed with these marks, as a ruler, his follower, Brahmin householders, citizens, will not be divided amongst themselves. Likewise, as a Buddha, his followers, monks, nuns, will not be divided amongst themselves. This was what the Lord declared. And with number 24 and 26, his teeth are even, his canine teeth are very bright. The Tathagata, rejecting wrong livelihood, lived by right livelihood, refraining from cheating with false weights and measures, from bribery and corruption, deception and insincerity, from wounding, killing, imprisoning, highway robbery, and taking goods by force. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, even teeth and very bright canine teeth. Being endowed with these marks, if he keeps to the household life, he will be a wheel-turning monarch. His followers will be pure. As a Buddha, his followers, monks, nuns, will be pure. And number 27 and 28 are together. His tongue is very long, and he has a Brahma-like voice, like that of the Karavika bird. The Tathagata, rejecting harsh speech, abstaining from it, spoke what was blameless, pleasing to the ear, agreeable, reaching the earth, urbane, pleasing and attractive to the multitude. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man. His tongue was very long, and he had a Brahma-like voice, like the Karavika bird, which is a mythical bird that has a very beautiful sound that it emits. Being endowed with these marks, as a ruler, he will have a persuasive voice. All subjects will take his words to heart. As a Buddha, too, he will have a persuasive voice. All monks and nuns will take his words to heart. And with number 29, his eyes are deep blue, and 30, he has eyelashes like a cow's. The Tathagata was accustomed to look at people and not askance, obliquely and furtively, but directly, openly, and straightforwardly, and with a kindly glance. And on returning to the earth, he acquired these two marks of the great man, deep blue eyes and eyelashes like a cow's. As a Buddha, he will be popular with and loved by monks, nuns, laymen and laywomen, devas and humans, asuras, nagas, and gandharvas. And with number 23 and number 31, they are together. His body hairs are separate, one to each pore, and the hairs between his eyebrows is white and soft like cotton down. The Tathagata, rejecting false speech, put away lies and became a truth speaker, wedded to the truth, reliable, consistent, not deceiving the world. On returning to earth, he acquired these two marks of a great man, his body hairs separate, one to each pore, and the hair between his brows white and soft like cotton down. Being endowed with these marks, as a ruler he will be obeyed by Brahmin householders, as a Buddha by monks. And finally, number 32, his head is like a royal turban. And this is referring to the extended growth at the top of the skull that looks like a man bun, but this is, as Robert Thurman describes it, an extra chunk of brain, in Sanskrit called the Ushnisha. 
the Tathagata became the foremost in skilled behavior, a leader in the right action of body, speech, and thought, in generosity, virtuous conduct, observances of fasts in honoring father and mother, ascetics and Brahmin, and the head of the clan, and in various other proper activities. On returning to earth he acquired the mark of a great man, a head like a royal turban. Being endowed with this mark, as a ruler he will receive the loyalty of Brahmin householders and citizens. As a Buddha he will receive loyalty of monks and nuns. Should he leave the world, this man of doctrine will a master be, and all the folk will flock to hear the teachings that he will proclaim. And I've also heard that performing prostrations, where the elbow and knee touch the ground and you touch your head to the ground as well, will result eventually in this Ushnisha growth. So those were what were called the 32 major characteristics, but there's also a list of the 80 minor characteristics, like pink fingernails and long earlobes, and again, these 80 characteristics are all related to aspects of the Buddha's personality that he cultivated. So what this discourse is demonstrating is that the peculiar physical appearance of a Buddha is the result of his extreme dedication to virtue and Dharma practices over many past lifetimes. And what is interesting about this is that while you don't see anyone walking around with all of these physical hallmarks, what you do see is individual persons or people with a few of these characteristics. And in the Buddhist view, they got them by performing the same deeds that the Buddha did, such as blue eyes or long arms or a beautiful face or straight teeth. And what you will see from this list is that none of the deeds that the Buddha did are supernatural or outside the realm of possibility for anyone. Anyone can tell the truth and speak pleasantly or give clothes to the poor or honor their elders and teachers. So all of these qualities are just waiting for us to enjoy, but we have to create the causes for them to arise through deeds of body, speech, and mind. And lastly, about the relationship between the way our bodies look and the states of our minds, if non-virtue is performed, if we are liars or abuse our elders or create negative karma, the result of this is bodies that are, let's say, deficient in splendor. And if you look at animals and the way evolutionary biology has shaped the vast variety of animal forms, these are also the results of the minds of beings. Some of these beings have sharp teeth and claws because they like to kill and fight. Some have hard shells because they don't want to see anyone and don't want to be bothered. I have a red-eared slider that someone gave me because they didn't want to take care of it, and all that it wants to do is dig a hole in the ground, and if any of my exposed flesh comes within range, this turtle will instantly bite a chunk out of me. And if you're thinking of getting a red-eared slider, uh, get ready to clean a lot of turtle poop and get bit a lot. So... Look at the vast array of animal forms, and then look at the sheer number of animals on our planet. Think of how many ants there are in just a city block, then extrapolate that out for the whole world. Scientists believe that there are about 10,000 trillion ants on Earth, and not to mention all of the beetles, flies, fish, crustaceans, microorganisms, mammals, reptiles, sharks, trillions and trillions and trillions of other kinds of life forms that all have consciousness just like us but only 7.5 billion humans and while the humans are the only animals that can perform complex conceptual reasoning that makes us think that we are superior this special talent also means that we can make nuclear bombs and have slaves and destroy the environment with factory farming and that's the trade-off that we are smart but extremely immature 
but human beings are also the only ones that can practice dharma. Along with our great intelligence, we have the capacity for wisdom. We can accord with reality and use our intelligence and reasoning to become Buddhas, not just inventor monkeys and business apes. This is why we read sutras, gain merit, and practice meditation, so that we can use our human minds and bodies for what they are meant for. From this discourse, we can see that gaining this human body is a result of compassionate thinking and action. It's the effect of the cause of following skillful action for the benefit of others, which also causes benefit for oneself. We all want to be happy and benefit ourselves, but through lack of understanding of the cause and effect relationship of our intentions and actions, we, as Shantideva put it, hasten after the causes of our suffering and destroy our own happiness as if it were an enemy. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama puts it, if you want to be selfish, be a wise selfish and benefit others. We say such incredibly stupid things to each other like, no good deed goes unpunished, and nice guys finish last, when really it could not be the more opposite. So to develop a healthy fear of misusing this human body and wasting the opportunity that is so rare and hard won, you need only look around at the suffering of the animal realm to see what awaits you, not to mention the ghost and hell realms, and realize the sheer statistical unlikeliness that you have become a human. And now that you are a human, with this very specialized information, you are the rarest of the rare. But to not use this information in the way that it was intended is like never having heard it at all. So I pulled from only four suttas uh, to conclude with that I feel make some interesting points about the awesome attributes of the Tathagata, but there are literally hundreds of suttas in the Pali Canon, and I've read maybe a quarter of them myself, so I'm positive that I've left out incredibly important points. In this podcast, hardly at all gives you a taste of how the Buddha taught, the depths of his teachings, what his disciples were like, the noble Sangha of Arhats, who are tremendous figures in their own right. So all I suggest is to dig in and go deep to the accesstoinsight.org website where almost all of the suttas are available for free to read. I'll provide the link to that and the Vasudhimaga on the Buddhaverse website. So to continue on, I found this short discourse from the Sinmyutta Nikaya called the Buddha Sutta, where a disciple asked Gautama what is the difference between an Arhat and a Buddha. And this is what he says. At Shravasti, monks, the Tathagata, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one, who from disenchantment with form, from dispassion, from cessation, from lack of clinging for form, is released, is termed rightly self-awakened. And a discernment released monk, who from disenchantment with form, from dispassion, from cessation, from lack of clinging for form, is released, is termed discernment released. The Tathagata, the worthy one, the rightly self-awakened one, who from disenchantment with consciousness, from dispassion, from cessation, from lack of clinging for consciousness is released, is termed rightly self-awakened. And a discernment released monk, who from disenchantment with consciousness, from dispassion, from cessation, from lack of clinging for consciousness is released, is termed discernment released. And so the sutta continues on in this same way and pattern discussing the other five aggregates of feeling, perception, and mental formation. So what difference, what distinction, what distinguishing factor is there between one rightly self-awakened and a monk discernment released? For us, Lord, the teachings have the Blessed One as their root, their guide, and their arbiter. It would be good if the Blessed One himself would explicate the meaning of this statement. 
having heard it from the Blessed One, the monks will remember it. In that case, monks, listen and pay close attention, I will speak. As you say, Lord, the monks responded. The Blessed One said, The Tathagata, the Worthy One, the Rightly Self-Awakened One, is the one who gives rise to the path previously unarisen, who engenders the path previously unengendered, who points out the path previously not pointed out. He knows the path, is expert in the path, is adept at the path, and his disciples now keep following the path and afterward become endowed with the path. This is the difference. This is the distinction. This is the distinguishing between one rightly self-awakened and a monk discernment released. So I couldn't find any commentary on this sutta, but I thought it was important to this topic. So using my own wisdom and understanding, I take this to mean that the Buddha wanted to make it clear that a person who has realization of nirvana, which he here equates with disenchantment, dispassion, cessation of attachments to the five psychophysical aggregates of form-feeling perception, mental fabrications, and consciousness, which are the building blocks of the human experience, is called rightly self-awakened when they are a Buddha and discernment released when they are an arhat. There is no difference in the qualitative realization of an arhat and a Buddha, and the Buddha did not attain a different nirvana from the arhats, which to me sounds quite nice and encouraging for his disciples, that the highest fruit of the spiritual path can be experienced here and now, which is an end to the karmic conflagration that results from lack of wisdom and attachment. This is called cessation because you have ceased to create the causes of suffering for good, forever. But what I also understand is that what is known by the Buddha and what is known by the Arhats is very different. And this sutta succinctly shows that when Buddha says that it is a Buddha who gives rise to the path that was previously unarisen, who engenders, points out, is expert in, adept at, the path that leads to nirvana, it is the Arhat, the disciple, that follows this path. But the Buddha, through his omniscience and all the qualities mentioned previously in this podcast, who saw directly himself and had the ability to lay out this path and then lead others to it, to the great city of enlightenment. This makes me think of a story of when the Buddha and his disciple Shariputra were walking. And forgive me if I butcher this story. I uh, heard it a long time ago and I couldn't find it again in my research. But when they entered the city, the people came up to them and very eagerly made offerings to Shariputra only and not the Buddha, which horrified and confounded Shariputra. And when he asked the Buddha why this was, why all these people came up to only him, the Buddha told Shariputra to use his supernormal abilities to look into his past lives to see why this is so. But after looking through many lifetimes, Shariputra could not see why this was happening. So the Buddha then told him that some 250,000 lifetimes ago, it was either an anthill or a beehive or something, I forgot, I'm sorry, and the pre-Buddha, meaning Buddha back then, stepped on or destroyed the nest by accident. And Shariputra, seeing this, saved all of the bugs. And so now all these bugs were the people of this city. And so because of this, they have more affection for Shariputra than the Buddha himself. This story reflects on the effects of karmic connections, but it also demonstrates that even though Shariputra was the foremost in wisdom and in guiding disciples, compared to the Buddha, he lacked the vast vision of the three times that the Buddha wields. And further, what this story demonstrates to me is that even though Shariputra attained freedom from personal suffering, his path and evolution were far from over, meaning Buddhahood lay ahead of him and was not yet his reality. 
and about a city of enlightenment, about what the Buddha realized when he became rightly self-awakened, we have the Nagara Sutta from the Samyutta Nikaya, also known as the Discourse on the City. It begins, Dwelling in Shravasti, monks, before my awakening, when I was just an unawakened bodhisattva, the realization came to me, how this world has fallen on difficulty, is born, it ages, it dies, it falls away and re-arises, but it does not discern the escape from this stress, from this aging and death. Oh, when will it discern the escape from this stress, from this aging and death? Then the thought occurred to me, aging and death exist when what exists? From what as a requisite condition is there aging and death? From my appropriate attention there came the breakthrough of discernment. Aging and death exist when birth exists. From birth as a requisite condition comes aging and death. Then the thought occurred to me, birth exists when what exists? From what as a requisite condition comes birth? From my appropriate attention there came the breakthrough of discernment. Birth exists when becoming exists. From becoming as a requisite condition comes birth. Name and form exists when what exists. From what as a requisite condition is their name and form. From my appropriate attention there came the breakthrough of discernment. Name and form exist when consciousness exists. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. Then the thought occurred to me, consciousness exists when what exists. From what as a requisite condition comes consciousness. From my appropriate attention there came the breakthrough of discernment. Consciousness exists when name and form exists. From name and form as a requisite condition comes consciousness. Then the thought occurred to me. This consciousness turns back at name and form, and goes no farther. It is to this extent that there is birth, aging, death, falling away, and re-arising, i.e., from name and form as a requisite condition comes consciousness. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. From name and form as a requisite condition comes the sixth sense media, and so on. Thus is the origination of this entire mass of stress. Origination, origination. Vision arose, clear knowing arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me, and with regard to things never heard before. Then the thought occurred to me, aging and death don't exist when what doesn't exist. From the cessation of what comes the cessation of aging and death. From my appropriate attention there came the breakthrough of discernment. Aging and death don't exist when birth doesn't exist. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of aging and death. Name and form doesn't exist when what doesn't exist. From the cessation of what comes the cessation of name and form. From my appropriate attention there came the breakthrough of discernment. Name and form doesn't exist when consciousness doesn't exist. From the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form. Then the thought occurred to me. Consciousness doesn't exist when what doesn't exist. From the cessation of what comes the cessation of consciousness. From my appropriate attention, there came the breakthrough of discernment. Consciousness doesn't exist when name and form doesn't exist. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of consciousness. The thought occurred to me, I have attained this path to awakening, i.e., from the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of consciousness. From the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of name and form. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense media. From the cessation of the sixth sense media comes the cessation of contact. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. 
From the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and sustenance. From the cessation of clinging and sustenance comes the cessation of becoming. From the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth. From the cessation of birth, then aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair all cease. Thus is the cessation of this entire mass of stress. Cessation, cessation. Vision arose, clear knowing arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me, with regard to things never heard before. It is just as if a man, traveling along a wilderness track, were to see an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by people in former times. He would follow it. Following it, he would see an ancient city, an ancient capital, inhabited by people of former times, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled, delightful. He would go to address the king or the king's minister, saying, Sire, you should know that while traveling along a wilderness track, I saw an ancient path. I followed it. I saw an ancient city, an ancient capital, complete with parks, groves, and ponds, walled, delightful. Sire, rebuild that city. The king or king's minister would rebuild the city, so that at a later date the city would become powerful, rich, and well-populated, fully grown and prosperous. In the same way I saw an ancient path, an ancient road, traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of the former times. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road, traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times? Just this noble eightfold path, right view, right aspiration, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That is the ancient path, the ancient road, traveled by the rightly self-awakened ones of former times. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of aging and death, direct knowledge of the origination of aging and death, direct knowledge of the cessation of aging and death, direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of aging and death. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of birth, becoming, clinging, craving, feeling, contact, the sixth sense media, name and form, consciousness, direct knowledge of the origination of consciousness, direct knowledge of the cessation of consciousness, direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of consciousness. I followed that path. Following it, I came to direct knowledge of fabrications, direct knowledge of the origination of fabrications, direct knowledge of the cessation of fabrications, direct knowledge of the path leading to the cessation of fabrications. Knowing that directly, I have revealed it to monks, nuns, male lay followers, and female lay followers, so that this holy life has become powerful, rich, detailed, well-populated, widespread, proclaimed amongst celestials and human beings. Thus ends part one of this two-part series on who or what the Buddha is. These concepts of dependent origination, nirvana, the eightfold path, five aggregates, I glossed over without any elaboration. So if you are not familiar with these terms, you either have some homework or I have some explaining to do. And you should tune in to future episodes of the Buddhaverse podcast where I will surely cover these topics in great detail. It's not like the information isn't out there. My goodness, there are 
a hundred libraries worth of books on these subjects, so please find someone better to teach you about the subject than me, and if you want to be like the incomparable teacher of gods and humans, the world-honored Tathagata, blessed and accomplished, go get you a Dharma teacher, one with compassion and great learning and devotion to the path, and a lineage they represent, and you are on your way. Please tune in as well for the second part of this series where I discuss the Mahayana, or universal vehicle perspective on the Buddha, where we discuss the Trikaya, or triple body of the Buddha, the pure lands, or the realms of the Buddha, Buddha nature, and I give readings from selected Mahayana sutras and masters about this ever so paramount and supremely pertinent topic of Buddha, and what this means to reality and life itself. If you enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful, please give it a five-star rating and share it with your friends and family on any and all social media outlets. Ami Tofu.